This critique and all of the other big videos I've done on video games are available to listen on the go through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and even SoundCloud where you can download the MP3 directly if you prefer to do that. I know these videos are long and intimidating, so I wanted to make it a little bit easier for you guys to consume it audibly if you prefer. Also, a huge thank you to all of these patrons who make these videos possible. Without their help, I couldn't justify spending all this time on these projects, so truly thank you and thank you to all of the big name sponsors who have helped make this a reality one last thing guys big thank you to richard miller trey and einar g their generosity over on patreon is second to none it, it honestly is baffling to me uh just how generous these guys have been so definitely show them some love in the comment section because these videos couldn't happen without them and all of the other patrons who helped make this possible so thank you truly i love you guys Enjoy the video. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor for this critique, Salad. Salad is the cutting edge technology company that's making it so you can profit from your PC even when you're not sitting in front of it. I don't know about you, but I've always been frustrated that I spend all this money on a nice PC so I can play games and hang out with friends online. And then when I'm not using it, it just kind of sits there and does nothing. <laughs> well, Salad aims to fix that by using your computer when you're AFK to solve complex equations to earn you money and rewards that you'll actually use. It's really straightforward. You'll install the app onto your desktop, and then whenever it detects that you haven't been using it for a set period of time that you determine, it will start to solve complex math equations using your computer hardware. And in exchange for your contribution to solving advanced computing tasks like blockchain validation and bandwidth sharing, you will receive a payment. And you'd be surprised at how quickly it can add up. I've actually been sponsored by Salad before, and the reason I keep working with them is because I still use their service all the time. Like... Literally, all the time. With the rewards you get, you can either cash out directly to, say, Amazon gift cards, or you can directly redeem copies of Steam games, for example, that you can redeem straight into your library. That's actually how I got my copy of God of War on Steam. I didn't pay for it. I just let my computer do the work while I was away from my desk throughout the day. And over the course of a few days and weeks, it generated enough revenue to redeem a very expensive, very premium title, and it didn't cost me anything. It's extremely easy to use, it's free to join, and in addition to that, it's a great company. They even donate a fixed percentage of their annual profits to charity, because why not? Check them out at the link in the video description box below or in the pinned comment, and make sure to use the promo code ELDEN when you sign up so that they know I sent you. Join me at the desk. Where do I even begin with a game like Elden Ring? It's massive, beloved, and has also dealt with its own fair share of criticism. Some deserved, some undeserved. Over the last few months, I've also been racking my brain over what I should say about it. I've made a few other videos that will be referenced later on in this video, where I broke down certain design elements, such as the 40-second design rule of its open world, or a video I made on its lack of performance stability, and its rave reviews prior to launch that were quickly walked back upon release. And while I have strong thoughts with regards to each of those elements, they don't really cohere into a singular opinion of the game. You see, this is one of the most captivating video games that I've played in a long time. And what I mean by that is that I was able to lose dozens upon dozens of hours in this world with almost no effort on my part at all. The game is so well put together, it is 
remarkably satisfying to play, especially if you are the type to enjoy these games. I say that because if you don't like From Software games, or at least haven't in the past, you are very unlikely to have your opinion significantly changed with Elden Ring. It's more of the same, just refined. In addition, there are huge chunks of this game which severely lack polish or thought and are even unacceptably bad. Now one of the reasons I wanted to take my time making this video and wait for a little while after the game launched to release it was because I wanted the dust to settle so hopefully people could look at the game a little more critically than they probably would when caught up in the hype of it all. I'm not going to spend hours lavishly praising the title without balancing it out with some much deserved criticism. This is not the perfect video game. I wouldn't even call it a masterpiece, and I also wouldn't call it a generation-defining game like so many other reviewers have. Now, I don't fault them for that opinion. I get what they were saying, and I think in many cases they were caught up in the hype and excitement of the game's launch. That level of excitement is enough to fog any mirror, and the fact that the game lives up to many of the expectations we had, and hopes leading up to the game's launch, it certainly assisted the developers in the conclusion that this was one of the best games that had ever been made, especially in this genre. But what we've seen in the months following the game's release is a slew of bugs, poorly optimized patches, balancing efforts that break other huge portions of the game, and seemingly an inability on the developers' part to wrestle with this monster that they've created. You see, this game is massive. It's a game that's so large in so many ways, it's honestly baffling that a team the size of From Software was able to put it together. I mean that in the nicest way possible, it's remarkable. But even so, they are a team of developers like any other studio. They aren't equipped with any magical abilities that make them capable of things that other studios can't do. In the words of Todd Howard from Bethesda Game Studios when he spoke about the development process of Skyrim, we can do anything, we just can't do everything. And in this case, the From Software team elected to put together a massive open world that's filled with bosses that challenge the player's combat abilities, all while maintaining the artistic quality that we've come to know and love from past titles. And they succeeded in that pursuit, and that's why so many people gave the game such rave reviews at launch. The exact thing that players wanted out of Elden Ring they got. Living up to that hype alone was enough for many people to consider this game an instant hit. But just like Todd Howard said, you can do anything, just not everything. And so while they managed to do some things very, very well, there were a lot of other elements of the game's design and qualitative standards that fell by the wayside. I don't want to look at this game in any sort of myopic way. I want to look at it as a video game in a vacuum. I want to ask questions like, is the game really enjoyable because it's designed in a quality way, or is it just another game in the same vein of games that I happen to enjoy? And I think when we look at the game in a much more critical and skeptical way such as this, we start to discover that many of the achievements of Elden Ring came at a great cost. While they were able to put together a world that was vast, artistically stunning, and filled with bosses akin to those from other Dark Souls and Bloodborne-style games, they were unable to maintain the same qualitative standards that we've come to expect from them. And unfortunately, 
These issues went almost entirely undiscussed when the game launched because everybody was so consumed with all of the things that the game did very well. And that brings us to this video. I want to break it down as fairly as possible, calling out the things that are problematic and that would be unacceptable if literally any other studio was guilty of perpetrating them. I also want to praise the game for its remarkable ability to captivate players and for its seemingly endless reserve of content. But continuing on with this, I really want to avoid endlessly describing the game's systems, every single weapon, ability, and item. While I think that's useful in some videos when we discuss particular games and systems, like in our video of The Last of Us Part 2, I don't think that this is actually much use here. Rather than doing that, I'm going to try and save us all the time and instead focus on what I think are the best and most important elements of the game or at least the parts that I think demand being addressed. So allow me to summarize my overarching opinion of Elden Ring before we get into the meat of the video. Elden Ring is a tremendous game that launched horribly unbalanced and very broken for many PC players. The game is massive and, according to a survey I did of almost 2,000 fans, it's a game that will take anywhere from 70 to 150 hours to complete. It is artistically stunning, quantitatively baffling, and qualitatively unpredictable. Some boss fights stand as triumphs, earning their place among the best engagements from software has ever designed, and others are so bafflingly bad that they seem as though they were developed by another team of amateurs trying to rip off of From Software's boss design. It's truly amazing. It's a game that was really good at launch, though far from perfect, and it's one that's certainly going to get better and better as time goes on and further patches are released. As of this point, mid-2022, a few months after its release, I can certainly say that Elden Ring is one of the most remarkable games I have ever played, and it is one that I will surely reference over the coming years in constant comparison to the endless stream of imitation attempts that will surely come. It's a great game. But just because it's great doesn't mean that it's immune to criticism or that it's incapable of faltering every once in a while. And in this video, I hope to clearly and concisely describe the issues I have with Elden Ring while also praising it for the countless things it does very, very well. I'm doing this not to be petty or cynical, but rather because I want to see the next game that From Software develops take all of this up a notch. While I don't think that Elden Ring is a masterpiece in open world design or even in the action RPG space, I do think that From Software's next attempt could reach that level with a slight shift in focus, some simplifications, and a return to their obsession with quality over quantity. Now I'm sure it goes without saying, but I'm going to spoil pretty much everything that happens in the game in this video like everything. I'm not sure we're going to go through every single boss in the game, but we're certainly going to be very, very close. I say this because while I do have a lot of bosses described in the script that I have for this video, when we go through the editing process and we try to fill out the empty gaps in the script with footage, sometimes we just sprinkle in other gameplay sequences and boss fights. So it's possible you'll see a boss in the video format that I don't happen to talk about verbally, but all told, you should just assume I'm going to show pretty much everything. I can almost guarantee that we'll show every area in the game, including locations of hidden items, weapons, and armor sets. We're going to discuss balancing, character buildouts, bosses' move sets, world design, and much, much, much more. So, if you haven't played the game yet, you should absolutely stop this video now with the understanding that I do recommend it. 
go play it and return to this video once you're done. I won't say that you can't enjoy the game if you watch this video first, but I think you would be much better served, especially with a lot of the bigger and more surprising moments and areas in the game, if you went in blind. We're going to discuss later in the video whether or not there is a right or wrong way to play games like this, because it's been a topic of much debate over the last few months, with countless players saying that if you use certain weapons or armor or farm for runes to level up, or that if you look up where to find certain armor pieces or weapons, you're simply playing the game wrong, all while other players will point out that using summons is making the game too easy and doing so effectively forfeits one's ability to reasonably discuss a boss's difficulty or quality. But all of that said, in my opinion, these protestations are remarkably stupid, and we're going to break down why piece by piece. But for now, I would just say that if you're going to play Elden Ring for the first time before watching this video, you should try to do so without grinding or farming for runes, and trying to play the game in as organic and natural feeling a way as possible. I can't believe I have to say it, but you probably shouldn't go looking up for the most broken build to play on this particular patch of the game that sort of misses the point. And I only say that because one of my friends did exactly that and then had an awful time with the game because he didn't learn how to play it. He just looked at the most broken thing he could do. So don't, don't be like him. Play it naturally. I don't like telling people how to play games, but in my mind, this is pretty self-evident. You're supposed to play the game, and in the case of Elden Ring, playing the game means exploring, fighting bosses, and collecting new items. All the while, you're collecting runes that you can use to level up your character and gain power. If you do any of those singular items to the exclusion of everything else, you are missing out on everything else that the game has to offer. If all you do is run around looking for weapons to collect, avoiding boss fights, and only engaging with smaller enemies to get runes, you're missing the point of the game. In the same way that if all you do in Elden Ring is hunt down bosses without looking around the new areas you discover, collecting different items, and without leveling up, you're also missing the point, and you probably won't have that great of a time because later bosses will kick your freaking ass. Simply just play the game, engage with all of the systems, and it'll feel pretty natural after just a few hours. And when you're done with it, I'll be here and you can keep watching through this video. But if you're still here, I'm going to assume that you're good with spoilers or you've already played the game, whatever it may be, so let's jump into it. After much debate back and forth, I decided that the best way to open this video would be to simply start at the beginning of my experience with Elden Ring. You see, I started playing the game on launch day on stream over on my Twitch channel. I initially decided to play the game on PC, ignorant of the fact that From Software titles are incapable of running at anything above 60 frames per second, regardless of the platform or the quality of the hardware. It's apparently an issue with their engine. Any frame rates above 60 mess with the animation timings and AI, and the entire game basically breaks. I know I've been called out in the comment section before for being a bit of a frame rate snob. Notably, I only really was able to play and enjoy Ghost of Tsushima once it came to uh, the director's cut and I could play it at 60 frames. I, I admit it, I like high frame rates. 
you got me. Guilty. But even so, this is baffling to me. If any other game launched on PC with a hard 60 FPS cap built right into the engine, it would be criticized roundly. The only exception to this are sprite-based games like Factorio, which are physically incapable of being rendered at higher frame rates because the actual sprites have specific frame rates rendered into them. But in games like Factorio, the frame rate doesn't actually have that much to do with the gameplay. But in a From Software title, the frame rate gives a qualitative and very quantifiable advantage to the player. More frames means finer control over the character and their movement and attacks. It's 2022 and the fact that I can play this game on a $5,000 PC and then on my $500 PlayStation 5 and see no difference at all on the screen other than a little bit of a resolution boost, it's frankly ridiculous in my mind. I know, I know, like boohoo, PC Master Race, your, your ports aren't working as well as you want. I get it, and like it is funny that you can spend five grand on a PC and the experience is the same as a console that's a tenth the price. But the point is that if you invest in the hardware that is more than capable of pushing this game at 100 frames or 150 frames a second, the fact that the engine doesn't allow you to do that, it, it just kind of sucks. Because if ever there was a game that having higher frame rates would be worth it, it would be this game. It would be these games. And the fact that we live in 2022 and From Software still hasn't figured this out is just amazing to me. What's even more ridiculous than all of that is that over the first 20 minutes or so of the game, it became incredibly clear that the PC port performed significantly worse than the console versions. My first exposure to a boss just a few minutes into the game was extremely negative. Instead of seeing the first major enemy and getting excited for the encounter, I was taken aback by the extreme frame drops and stuttering on screen. And furthermore, there was a ton of screen tearing, which was also very distracting. Again, I know that I might come off as a bit of a snob here, but I've invested a lot of money into my hardware setup so that I don't encounter issues like this and so that you guys don't see it when I make videos from the footage I capture. Because if I do encounter issues like this and I call them out, there will inevitably be an onslaught of comments arguing that it's unfair for me to criticize the game for my own hardware issues. So I just nip it in the bud by having high-end hardware that alleviates these problems most of the time. But in this case, I was not alone. And these weren't isolated incidents. Digital Foundry, the kings of PC gaming, even released a very comprehensive video on these technical issues describing them in detail. And I highly recommend you check that video out if you have any doubts at all as to the quality of the PC port at launch. To summarize their opinion, it seemed as though they thought that most of this had to do with shader compiling errors. In other words, every time a new object or enemy appears on screen, the game would try to compile compile all of the shaders in real time instead of having them batched before when the game loaded in. And this is why, as you played the game and your total playtime increased, players were less and less likely to see these stutters, because if you had seen that enemy before, the shaders would have already been compiled. But regardless of what actually caused these issues, they were still present. And for a game that's all about careful timing of dodges, attacks, and movements, 
it's frankly unacceptable. I thought maybe it would wear off after a few minutes, but I was wrong. The PC version was simply broken at launch. Nowadays, it's much better than it was back in February, but even when it's performing ideally, the only advantage to playing on PC over playing it on the PlayStation 5 or Xbox Series X is the ability to crank the resolution and eventually, hopefully, use mods. Other than that, you'll still be limited to 60 frames per second and none of the other graphical settings seem to have much of an impact. But regardless, I decided to just swap over to my PlayStation 5 and begin playing the game there. Performance still wasn't great, with it usually running around 50 frames per second and frequently bouncing between 40 and 60, but it was much more consistent and steady. So I just swapped over, rebuilt my character, and began playing again. I should also note that players found that using the PlayStation 4 version of the game, in other words, when you install the game to PlayStation 5, you select the PS4 version of the game, not the PS5 version of the game, and apparently the PlayStation 4 Pro version was the steadiest and most reliable port, probably because that's what they were actually developing the game on for the majority of its life. And then they eventually just ported it over to PlayStation 5 and then tried cranking some of the knobs up, which didn't work too well. But the point is that the PlayStation 4 Pro version was the most steady, so that's what we played the majority of the time on which is going to be most of the footage you're seeing uh, over the course of this video. Now, with my DualSense controller in hand, I ventured out into the open world for the first time, taking in the grand vistas and appreciating the incredible artistic direction that's immediately apparent. The epic music swells, and I found myself sitting there just taking it all in. I don't think this game is particularly graphically impressive, especially compared to other studios' products such as God of War or The Last of Us, but this game still holds its own. The world design, the artistic direction, the lighting, all paired with the music, are fantastically well realized. I won't spend too much time talking about this in this video because I think in large part these observations are self-evident. It would be like me walking through the exact controller scheme or walking around and navigating menus. It's there, it works well, and I think anybody looking at the screen will see that as well. But regardless, after a few moments of appreciation, it's time to move on with our journey and actually start exploring. After speaking to some prick who said that I couldn't get a girl, I decided to avoid the boss in the near distance and explore to the east instead. I've played enough of these games to know that the developers probably intended for me to bash my head up against the wall while trying to take on that dude on the horse in the distance, only to give up, explore a little, find important weapons and gear, and then return to find the boss fight a walk in the park. So so I did just that and began exploring the ruins that littered the landscape without going through the aforementioned frustration. I just skipped over that part. And it seems I was right, because a lot of players came right out into the open world, got told they couldn't get a girl, and then went and fought that boss and had a miserable time trying to take him on. It's one of those perks of having played these games before. From software tends to try to put players through the same paces of humbling you by forcing you into a boss fight that you're not really equipped for so that you reevaluate, really focus and center yourself. I've seen this before, so I just decided to bypass it, but it's fun that they're doing the same thing here. They've done in Bloodborne, they did in Dark Souls 3, Sekiro, 
it's it's definitely a staple introductory feature. The first thing I was struck by as I started exploring the landscape was just how open the map seemed to be. It's a huge shift from previous entries in the From Software catalog. Almost all of their past games of this style have been built around linear levels or semi-linear levels that are carefully constructed. Some of them may even feature open areas within them or sprawling vistas, but for the most part, you're traveling through pretty narrow levels that lead to one or two destinations. But when you're playing Elden Ring, the first thing you'll notice is that there is no such guidance this time around. There are no levels, there are no small claustrophobic corridors leading you to a set destination, it's all up to you. Once you enter the open world for the first time, you are prompted with a message that describes how the game's map works. And it's here that you learn to follow these guiding lights, as they're called. Basically, these things emit off of sites of grace, which are effectively bonfires or lanterns, as they've been called in previous games. These guiding lights are light arcs that stretch from the center point of the bonfire or site of grace and point in a specific direction. And following these arcs will lead you to the next site of grace, which will lead you to yet another and then another and so on. And following all of these will lead you to the major boss fights that you'll need to clear before moving on to the next area in the story. In other words, these light arcs serve as the main quest guide. There's no menu to navigate to tell you where to go, you just pull open the map and see where these things are pointing, or in the game itself, see where they happen to be pointing to get your bearings for where you need to go next. Later in the game, it will be very clear where you need to go at all times, and you won't really need to look at where the lights are guiding you, but early in the game, they're definitely useful to give you a general direction to explore. and. Everything is put together in a fairly straightforward way so that you get funneled through certain choke points that ensure players will all see roughly the same thing at roughly the same time. One of the other things that's incredibly important in these early hours is your mount. Torrent. You'll get access to this guy after discovering three sites of grace. Most people will get him after circling around to this big cliffside that gates off the next area. Once you have access to the mount, the world is your oyster, and you can go almost anywhere you want. You can sprint, double jump, and he can be summoned out of thin air. And I'll be real, I was very skeptical about this mechanic when I saw it in the trailers before the game's launch, but I gotta say it controls really nicely and I can't imagine the game without him. And I really think this is the nicest thing I could say about the mount, like possible, it's that I cannot imagine the game without it. Like if the mount were not in this game, Traversal would be significantly impaired. I think people would grow incredibly sick of just running around to different sites. I think he adds some much needed variety in the travel because you'll use the mount to actually leapfrog and jump up places that you couldn't get to before. It introduces a whole new level of verticality into the map. It's all tremendous and I hope that in future games we see a mixture of not just Torrent the Mount, but also the grapple hook from Sekiro. That's the only thing I felt was really, really missing in Elden Ring, was something to increase the dynamics of exploration when on foot. Maybe they'll do that next time around with like Elden Ring 2 or whatever they happen to call it. They'll introduce something like that. I think that would be a great addition, but until then we'll just have to see. The point is, Torrent is a tremendous addition to the series, and I love him dearly. Also, the name Torrent, how great is that? Every time somebody Googles Elden Ring Torrent to try and pirate the game, guess what pops up? <laughs> 
wiki articles and pictures of the mount in the game. Like, it's brilliant. You just, like, probably made searching for these torrents so inconvenient for middle schoolers that they're just not going to bother. It, it's brilliant. It's really clever. Now, as I explored these early areas, I discovered a large plant surrounded by smaller plants that were letting off some AOE attacks. It was nothing I couldn't handle, so I just sprinted around them. I picked up the item they were guarding and ran down the stairs nearby to see what was underneath these ruins that they were guarding. And much to my surprise, there was a fog door. And to anyone even slightly familiar with From Software games, that fog door signifies a boss fight. I had just stumbled onto one. And again, like I knew there were a lot of boss fights in this game, but I didn't realize just how many there were. I was just casually exploring the map, and then I discover this boss hidden in a stairwell behind a big plant. Like... We're talking about a lot of bosses if they can afford to put one in a location like this. So I buckled up and I decided to take the boss on with my level one character. Once I crossed the threshold, I was bum rushed by Mad Pumpkinhead, the first optional boss I had encountered in the game. And first of all, it's a great name. Like that's it. I don't, there's nothing else to that. I just love the name. Like Bad Pumpkinhead or Mad Pumpkinhead. Like that's awesome. I love it. Secondly, I love this guy's moveset. It reminds me a lot of the large brutes from old Yarnum in Bloodborne. He's aggressive, deals a lot of damage to you, but it always feels fair. And this first time around, I immediately got my ass kicked because I kept trying to parry him, so I died and I just reset. It's also here that I realized Elden Ring had implemented a very different type of checkpoint system than I was used to. There are these Stakes of Merica, or Merica. I'm not sure how to say it, so I'm probably going to accidentally swap between them and say them both ways over the course of this video. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna go with it. These things are scattered all throughout the game's map and are often placed outside of boss arenas. Some bosses don't get these, usually for narrative reasons, because Merica, Merica, whatever her name is, had relationships with some of the bosses in the game and she was a little sassy with some of them so certain bosses don't actually get them it's a cool touch i like it but the point is they serve as a reset point that's not a side of grace or a bonfire and that is a huge departure from previous games granted previous titles didn't have anywhere near this number of optional bosses but it's still important to note that you used to have to run for a long way just to get from the last bonfire you rested at to the fog door once again. And I think they probably went with these checkpoints for a few reasons that are all very well reasoned and justified. Firstly, as we will continue to see as we look at more bosses later in this video, there's a huge amount of variety in the bosses that we are playing with here. Some of them are extremely difficult, others extremely easy. But importantly, some of them are extremely weak to certain types of weapons certain elemental effects or damage types, such as staggering or slicing. And because of this, some players, depending on their builds, will find one boss incredibly easy and another incredibly difficult, even when compared directly to another player of the same level based purely off of what weapons they are using. As a result, the developers seem to have given up on trying to balance all of these encounters dynamically and instead just give you a quick checkpoint so that if you ever die while exploring and taking on one of these optional bosses that you stumble upon, you can quickly reload and it doesn't feel as unfair as if you had just lost 20 minutes of 
exploration like in the last few games. And I will testify, there is nothing as frustrating as playing through a From Software game, stumbling onto a boss, getting killed, losing all of the souls or runes, whatever the currency is in that particular game, and then forgetting how you got to that boss arena. You only have one chance to get there because if you die, the last set of runes or souls are abandoned. So you've got to figure it out. But if you can't remember where you were or what the route was you, you used to get there, you're just out of luck. That never felt fair. It always sucked. But with these stakes of Marika, it, it fixes the problem because you start right there. Boom. Easy. Done. I know exactly where it is. The boss is right down these stairs. I love it. Because again, this is something that will come up time and time again throughout this video. These games only really work when damage or punishment to the player feels genuinely fair. When it doesn't feel fair, such as the frame drops on the PC port, the game doesn't feel like, oh, a challenge. Oh, that was so difficult, but I fought hard and I overcame adversity to win it. It just feels bad. It's not fun. But when it feels fair, it's all the more satisfying when you finally figure it out and overcome that obstacle. Dying and losing all of your souls, blood echoes, runes, whatever, because you couldn't remember how to get back to the place that you accidentally discovered, that wasn't fun. But having a site of grace or a checkpoint nearby that you can quickly pop to and then run back into the boss arena keeps the fun, keeps it engaging, and removes some unnecessary bloat and filler in the form of running between the Site of Grace or Bonfire or whatever to the boss arena because it wasn't necessary. Instead, they just give you a checkpoint, you're good. Secondly, I think the developers wanted to encourage players to take on bosses as they discover them out in the world. Because there's no in-game journal or way of tracking bosses' locations without individually dropping markers on your map, something that very few players actually did over the course of their time with the game, according to my survey and research, if most players happened to stumble on a fog door while exploring, they likely would simply try to remember where it was, go find the next site of grace, rest there, and then turn back to find the fog door once again. And I don't think I need to explain why that isn't something a game developer wants from their players. If a player discovers something cool in your open world, you should want to enable them to engage with it and you should empower them so that they can. It's okay if they take on the boss, get slapped, and then decide that they aren't properly leveled for it. But let that be the player's choice, because if the player sees a really cool boss fight, but they simply aren't powerful enough to see it through to the end, they may leave, but they are much more likely to return. Once they've leveled up, they'll remember how cool that boss looked and seemed, and they will actively seek it out to see it through. And thirdly, one of the perks of having checkpoints closer to the fog doors is that you can get away with much more difficult bosses more frequently. The player is far less likely to grow frustrated and give up on an encounter if it's only a 10 second walk to a fog door compared to some of the three, four, or five minute trudges from previous games. Really, no matter which way you look at it, I think these Marika stakes are a tremendous addition, and I hope they stick it out and remain in future titles. They aren't in every single boss arena, as I mentioned earlier, and they serve as a great quality of life improvement. The only arguments against their inclusion that I've seen are from the tryhards that are 
argue they make the game too easy. But to that, I would say that Elden Ring is easy for a lot of different reasons. I agree that the game is probably the easiest game that From Software has made in the last decade, but that's for many different reasons than the stakes of Marika's. But I'll get to that later. But to avoid the pedantic comments, let's be very, very precise about this. I should say that Elden Ring can be the easiest game out of all of the Dark Souls entries, Bloodborne, Sekiro, specifically, if you want it to be. The easiest. There's so much gameplay variety that it's almost entirely up to the player to balance the game for themselves. If you want easy boss fights, there are weapons and loadouts that you can use to achieve that end. And if you want an incredibly difficult, soul-crushing experience, you can get that too. I would argue that this probably wasn't entirely intentional on From Software's part, but we'll get to that later. The point is, Elden Ring is easy, but not because of these more frequent checkpoints. As far as I'm concerned, they cut out one of the most annoying and frustrating parts of the previous games, which was the mad dash from checkpoint to the boss arena. Nobody plays these games for that sprint. Rather, they are playing it for the thing at the end of that sprint. So this time around, the developers simply decided to bypass the thing that everybody hates just to focus on the thing that everybody loves. And to be honest, I don't know how you could reasonably argue with that. Regardless, I kept fighting Pumpkinhead. That's a sentence I never thought I would say out loud, but here we are. Upon defeating him after a few tries, an area opens up behind him, which introduces you to a woman who can teach you different magical spells. I had never played with magic in any other From Software title, so I decided that this would be a good time to try it. I learned a few different sorcery spells, namely this ranged arc attack, and another attack with a more direct homing projectile, and went about my day. And in this short, 15 minute period, I had engaged with the core gameplay loop of Elden Ring. I had explored, found a boss, optional or otherwise, fought him until I won, I got the cool thing that they were guarding or that was nearby, and then I repeated the cycle. And it's a damn good gameplay loop! I love it! Sure, it's contingent upon a few different elements being solid, namely that the exploration feels organic and fulfilling, and that the boss fights maintain a certain qualitative standard. I would say that the reward also needs to feel worthwhile, but most players are not going to engage with the boss because they're hoping there's a cool reward at the end of it, they're just doing it for sake of fighting that boss. So while the reward is nice, I don't think it's the primary motivating factor, though it's important to note it should still be a good and noble reward that justifies that encounter, whether that's in the form of a large rune payout, which helps you level up, or an item, or a weapon, or armor piece, or something like that that makes it feel more justified, all of that would be great. It just needs to justify the encounter. At its core, the gameplay loop is extremely effective, especially for this game's target audience. For those of us who have played From Software games before, this is a dream come true. We loved the boss fights in previous games so much that they were almost the sole driving factor that kept us playing through those games. We beat one really tough boss just so we could get on to the next. And in this game, there are more bosses than ever more cool stuff to find and to use against the bosses than ever, and it's all contained within a world that's visually stunning and overflowing with more interesting things to see than ever. For example, immediately after leaving Pumpkinhead's arena, I exited and crossed over to a rock ledge to the west, just a stone's throw away. What I saw stuck with me for the entirety of my run. There were two malicious malignant monstrosities with stakes through their backs. 
They were dragging a large cart that looked to be the centerpiece of a funeral procession, and trailing behind them appeared to be a large group of mourners, walking slowly as this coffin was brought to its presumed final destination. It was beautiful, eerie, disturbing, and it was also fascinating, all at the same time. I'm still not entirely sure what was going on here, though I am sure that one or many of you will let me know in the comment section below the like button what the lore explanation for this event was. What I do know is that it was memorable enough that I started looking for these coffins elsewhere, trying to discover where they might have been taking this body. There are graves everywhere on the map, of course, but this one seemed special. And as you explore the rest of the map, you'll see these guys and these funeral processions scattered all around, and they're usually headed to special areas like the House of a Boss, a site where there are a lot of smithing stones that are useful for upgrading weapons or other such treasures. Now at this point, I had only been playing the game for around an hour, and I was already captivated. I wanted to know where this funeral procession was going, where they came from, if I was going to find anything interesting when I arrived at their destination. I had also defeated a boss that I discovered haphazardly, which was immensely satisfying in itself. The boss felt fair and balanced and seemed to maintain the same qualitative standard as the bosses from the previous games. I had also collected some cool new sorceries, and on top of all of this, I had gained runes that I could use to level up, grow in power, and be prepared to take on the next boss. This is the core gameplay loop of Elden Ring, and it is tremendous. The only time I have a problem with Elden Ring or get frustrated with it is when one of the elements of this core loop falters. And unfortunately, that happens a lot, especially in the mid-game when you are very likely to grow more powerful than the bosses you'll be taking on. You see, as the following hours tick by, we will take on a number of big-name bosses. Specifically, Margit, Godric, the Red Wolf, Renala, Godfrey, Morgoth, the Fire Giant, Godskin Duo, Malekith, Sir Gideon, Godfrey, Radagon, and then the Elden Beast. If you look at this map, you can see where each of these bosses are located, and you can see they follow a fairly straightforward path. You'll also notice that there aren't any necessary major bosses in Kaelid, the section in the bottom right portion of the map, which is somewhat interesting. I don't actually know why this was. Like, why didn't the story force you there to engage with some big bosses that were themed around the area? It seems like an area where you could have some really gross, really difficult bosses for the main story, but the game just never goes there. I don't know if they're saving that for a DLC or if they were going to put big bosses in there and then just threw them elsewhere. I, I really don't know, but it is odd that there's no main story content in that portion of the map. It's just odd to me. Going with this map, I would rank the levels as such. With this breakdown, the yellow areas would be classified as the early game or the first act. The blue areas I would classify as the mid game or second act, and the red areas are the end game, which focus predominantly on difficult bosses that will likely be taken on one after the other without much exploration in between. This red portion of the map is extremely linear. You will be going through sharp corridors and it feels much more in line with what you would expect from a Dark Souls game. On the contrary, the yellow and blue areas, very, very unique, just to Elden Ring, wide open expanses, tons of optional bosses to be found. It's where I think Elden Ring is really at its best. But what is the point of this? Well, 
balance is a huge issue in Elden Ring because, of course, players are going to be going to and from almost any location whenever they want, figuring out how difficult to make a boss at any given location or time is very, very difficult. Because after all, if one player can take on a boss at level 50, but other players are going to take him on at level 100, how do you make sure that boss is still engaging for both players without it feeling either way too difficult for the level 50 player or way too easy for the level 100 character? And this is where we get into discussion of the overarching balance in Elden Ring and why it doesn't work super well. But before we get into that, I need to do a costume change. Spin move! <laughs> How cool was that? Quick and easy, I love it. Now one of the most important game design elements of any open world RPG is the balance between the player's strength and the non-player character's strength. If this balance is out of whack, the player could end up in a situation where they are surrounded by enemies that are far too powerful to defeat, which results in the game being soul-crushingly difficult and feeling unfair. On the flip side, you could end up in a situation where the player will spend an extended period of time in an area that they have outpaced and so it's incredibly boring. Normally, the way the developers deal with this is with dynamic level scaling, narrative gates to prevent you from progressing until you've accomplished certain things that would indicate you've grown in power such that you could handle the next area, or the typical from software approach, which is with what's known as a DPS check. Quick terminology break, DPS simply means damage per second. So a DPS check is just checking what your DPS is. In other words, a DPS check is when the game challenges the player in a certain way that, in theory, can only be passed if the player is able to put out a set amount of damage and withstand a certain amount of damage, which would be an indication of either the player's skill or their character's level and loadout, or hopefully a combination of the two. Think of something like Father Gascon in Bloodborne. He's an early game boss, and many players will find him extremely difficult. But simply, he serves one major purpose, and that is to train the player how to use the parry mechanic. From Software could have simply had a training area where you have to land, say, 10 parries in a row, but instead they decided to teach the player through this actual in-game encounter. It's certainly possible to defeat him without using parries of any kind, but it will be vastly more difficult and tedious. So, if players get past him, the developers know one of two things. Either the player has mastered the parry mechanic such that they are ready to move on to the next area where it will be incredibly important to making that area easier, or they are well equipped enough to deal with high-level enemies even without parries. But either way, the player is ready to move on. Now, Elden Ring has a few of these DPS checks and gameplay checks, but they're few and far between, and that's mainly for one key reason, and that is that they never really know where you're gonna go to next. I mean, just in line with what I described in my opening moments with the game, I saw a boss in front of me that I figured most players would probably beat their head against, so instead of dealing with him, I just turned right and ran in the other direction. The developers don't know if you or I or any other player are going to go for that boss or run off and explore, and if they are going to go off and explore, in which direction they're going to go. This makes it incredibly difficult to have set DPS checks without 
sort of funneling all players through one specific portal, which is what they do a few times in the game, especially towards the end when they want to make sure players are at a reasonable level of skill or difficulty or power before moving on to the high level end game bosses. It's very apparent that they intended for you to explore freely. You're not wrong for doing that. They wanted you to approach this game in a way very different from their prior titles. And fascinatingly, the game's director, Hidetaka Miyazaki, expressed a lot of angst and concern over this in interviews leading up to the game's launch. He was genuinely worried that diehard fans of the series wouldn't like Elden Ring because it was designed for players to approach it in a much different way. And it turns out, he was right. Players who approached Elden Ring like Dark Souls ended up having a much harder time with it than those who approached it like they did a game, say, such as Skyrim or Breath of the Wild. And this is where we come back to the idea that I mentioned at the beginning. This game can be whatever you want it to be. If you want to have a soul-crushingly difficult experience, you can have that if you play in certain ways. If you want to just waltz your way through all of the major boss encounters, only struggling with the last few, you can do that if you want to play in a different way. And I'm really conflicted as to what I think about this, because I do think it's important that developers balance their games in a way that players can garner a somewhat predictable experience. I don't think your game is built in a very robust manner if Timmy can have one experience with it and Johnny has a totally different experience that's way more difficult and way more punishing just because they played it in different styles. Or to use another example, if half of your players have a great time exploring and find the boss encounters very approachable, but the other half consider the game to be extremely difficult and unfun in many cases, I can't help but feel as though something went wrong along the way, at least as long as the players were unaware of the alternative style of play or incapable of achieving it. If somebody intentionally wants to make the game difficult on themselves, that's up to them. In the same way that if you're doing pacifist runs of Fallout New Vegas, it's a totally fair way to play the game, one that the developers specifically allowed for, but it's also a play style that's going to be much more difficult to pull off than your standard run of the game, but it's still your prerogative to do it. And going down that same vein of an RPG, if players know that there are a couple of weapons, such as the anti-material rifle in Fallout New Vegas, that make most encounters extremely trivial, their choice to collect that weapon and use it as their main tool in combat is exclusively on the player. The developers put that in there as an option, but it's still up to the player to decide to use it actively. Hopefully, the power of that weapon is balanced somewhat with usability restrictions, such as having limited ammunition or high stat requirements or very low durability scores, because this is very useful as it keeps the weapons from breaking the game to a point where combat serves no real purpose or challenge anymore. And I know some people will disagree with my desire to have some limiting caps or limitations on very powerful weapons loadouts or playstyles in these games, but I think it's very important for retaining the quality of the experience for all players, not just a select few who happen to figure out how to break it. If you're going to argue that there should be overpowered weapons without restrictions in a game like Elden Ring or Fallout New Vegas, I would ask why not just give the player the ability to wish a character dead with a simple click? After all, Players don't need to use that tool, but if they want to use it, they can. Now, obviously, such a mechanic or weapon as a simple one-click kill would be 
ridiculous. And that's why you won't find such an overpowered, crazy, unbalanced ability in a well-put-together RPG. They don't want to break the game such that an entire system of gameplay is rendered useless. And I know, I know, there are console commands in Fallout New Vegas where you can hit like tilde, type in kill, and then click on an NPC if you're playing on PC, that is, and they'll just drop dead. Or you can do tilde, kill all, and it'll kill every single NPC in the game. And you'll have to sit there for like 15 minutes as every quest says failed slowly as it fades in. It's kind of funny and it's fun to do once or twice, but that's not what I would say a main gameplay mechanic. It's a remnant of the development console command that they give you. It's not on the console port of the game. So I don't think it could be quantified as an intended gameplay mechanic. Now, my point with all of this is that extremely powerful weapons and abilities need to be balanced out with handicaps to keep the player within the aforementioned gameplay loop. If you get a weapon that's totally broken, able to defeat most bosses easily, and that's free of limiting factors on its usability, there's all of a sudden no reason to continue exploring the world, fighting those mini bosses, and collecting new weapons, gear, and loot because you've already reached the top of the mountain. You could still go beating up on the mini bosses for the fun of it, but if the weapon is sufficiently overpowered, those mini boss fights will lack any and all challenge, which means they'll quickly grow stale. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you this, but Elden Ring has a lot of weapons, a lot of spells, and many summons which were all extremely broken on the game's launch, and even in multiple patches after release day. And before anybody says that it was intended, from software, patched the game to lower the damage on these weapons and spells. If it wasn't a problem and if it wasn't a mistake, they wouldn't have to patch it out. Quick sidebar, this is one of the most annoying things I've noticed in videos that are defending Elden Ring. They point to something such as the Sword of Night and Flame, which we're going to talk about in just a second in great detail. And they will say, well, no, it was intended by the developers because they wanted to make sure that players who needed an easier time with the game had an option to use a weapon that makes the game easier. But to that, I would counter that the moment it became clear this weapon was extremely broken, From Software went in and nerfed the ever-living hell out of it. Like, it really isn't that powerful anymore. It's a fine weapon, and it's got some useful abilities, but it is far from the crazy game-ending blockbuster smash hit that it was before. Now, like I said, with the Sword of Night and Flame, it was totally broken for the first few weeks of the game. There are plenty of other weapons and spells that were also broken that received patches later, such as the Sorcery Comet Azure, or any of the handful of bleeding effect swords and daggers, which also broke the game for many of the beast and humanoid enemies. But I think this sword is the most recognizably broken thing, so it's what we're going to touch on. And it's also the sword that I did the most experimentation and footage collection with. You've probably noticed over the course of this video that I've already shown a lot of gameplay using this sword, and part of it is because I just have a crap ton of footage using this sword on the server behind me, but also because I find it really funny how totally broken it is. I really want to hammer this point home because people talk about Elden Ring as if it's some masterfully calibrated and carefully constructed masterpiece, and it's just not. There's a ton here but it really does feel like a game that's too big for the studio to even handle. It's a beast that got out of control and From Software is just trying to wrestle with it at this point, which is why so many of the patches 
sort of fixed things, and sort of broke other things. Now, in one of my playthroughs of Elden Ring in preparation for this critique, I used the Sword of Night and Flame for the majority of boss fights. I also wanted to test it without it getting nerfed in the middle of the run, so I did this particular playthrough on my PlayStation 5 Slim that's on the desk here, which I disconnected from the internet during this run, which meant I couldn't use online features, but did mean that I could use it without having a sudden nerf applied because from software apparently has a dynamic patching system where they can have things downloaded straight to the console or PC, but they can also have it. So every time you initialize the game, it checks with from software servers during the menu screen and load up and it can find new balancing information if they need to change the scaling for certain weapons. So pretty much if your console is connected to the internet, it will automatically nerf or rebalance weapons if from software happened to send something through. So most of the footage you're going to see me using is from this offline playthrough using this sword, at least while we discuss this. Now, everybody online during this time was saying that this sword was totally broken. And some were even saying that it removed all joy and fun from the Elden Ring experience. So I had to test it myself. The sword is found in a corner of an abandoned room within an old castle that's possessed by severed hands. That is a sentence I never thought I would speak, <laughs> but here we are. Now, I actually accidentally discovered this sword in the first 10 hours or so of of my very first playthrough. Later, when everybody started complaining about it, I looked in my inventory and realized that I had already acquired it, so I just started using it there. And then later run-throughs, I was able to go back to this exact location and retrieve it fairly easily. It's a pretty straightforward short sword, with typical light and heavy attacks based on R1 and R2. The difference is that you can hold down the left trigger and follow it up with a light or heavy attack to use its special attacks. One of them is a sweeping fire attack, specifically the special R2 attack, and the other one, the special R1 attack, shoots out a beam that deals magic damage. Now, interestingly, many of the early game bosses in that first zone that I showed you earlier are weak to either fire or magic damage, which means this sword absolutely slaps. This means that the weapon, which is already extremely powerful, is specifically useful in the early game when players are supposed to be learning how everything works. It's in the first quarter of a From Software video game that you're supposed to be spending time refining your skills so that you are set up for the more difficult bosses later on. What happened when the game released was that many new players to these From Software games looked up the most powerful loadout to cheese bosses, found a loadout of the Sword of Night and Flame, and then started using it to pimp slap everything they came across. And considering the scaling is primarily based off of intelligence, dexterity, and the amount of mana that you have applied to your character through runes and skill points, it's very easy to scale for this weapon. And yes, I did try using two of these Swords of Night and Flame. Basically, if you play co-op, one of your friends can effectively give you an item from their inventory, including a sword of night and flame or any other weapon that they happen to have acquired. So my buddy Caleb let me have his sword of night and flame that he was using. And I leveled both of them up to see if it would just totally demolish the game using two of these extremely powerful weapons. But it doesn't really work because you can't use like a double beam or a double fire sweep. It doesn't really work that way. So using one is just fine. You don't need to use two. I did test it. Doesn't work. Now, initially I thought, what's the big deal? 
At least they're playing the game and having fun. If they use a broken loadout, who am I to say that they're wrong? But my mind was changed when I reached later in the game during my playthrough where I used this sword. You see, there's a marked difficulty spike right as you hit the fire giant, and especially once you get past him. At this point, you're headed into the late game, and everything you encounter will be significantly more difficult than the earlier areas. You're also going to be fighting a lot of bosses which have narrative origins in magic, meaning that they won't be weak to the sword and they will even have high resistances to it. There are also a lot of fire-themed bosses as well which are highly resistant or even immune to fire damage. This means if you built your character around the Sword of Night and Flame, once you reach this endgame section, you will effectively be sprinting straight into a cinder block wall. Players will have had an easy time playing through the game, sprinting up the map and gaining dozens of levels along the way, but to put it frankly, they will not have been properly prepared for the late game bosses which require much more skill and a lot less cheese. Again, being as honest as we can manage, the players who have done this will have not learned the intricate timings of dodges, how to juggle multiple enemies with careful movement and rotations, or even how to utilize the countless buffs that the game gives you through consumables. They've simply been brute forcing their way through the game using an overpowered loadout, and now they're unprepared to fight monsters and bosses which don't give a damn. And I'll be honest, I actually think this is kind of funny. I've said many times I don't think this was part of some grand scheme by From Software to balance the game in this way, uh, where you hit this hard wall and they like punish and sort of cheese back the players who have been cheesing with a really powerful weapon. Because in general, there's just a lot more signs that show they didn't intend for players to break the game as badly as this sword allows them to. But... It is kind of funny to think that From Software put this sword in the game that's extremely powerful, knowing that new players or cheesy players would use it and blast through the game, and then they'd get to the hard bosses, which have major resistances to its damage output and just don't give a damn about the overpowered loadout. And it just forces players to go, oh, crap, what do I do now? I don't know. It's funny to me. I don't think it's the case, but I'd like to pretend it's the case that they were trolling players who were trying to troll the game. Now when I reached the fire giant in this particular run through, I was using nothing but the sword of night and flame. I had already beaten the game once, so I already knew what I was doing, at least to a certain extent. But even with my experience in the game, I was blown away at just how hard the game seemed to have suddenly gotten. It felt like in the course of 10 minutes, the weapon was nerfed in the middle of my playthrough. And to be clear, I didn't update the game. And this particular PlayStation 5 was unplugged from its Ethernet jack so that it wouldn't automatically update when I tested the consistency of certain weapons. So I know that From Software didn't update the weapon in the middle of this run through. It actually was that big of a shift in difficulty and resistance to this particular weapon. But what does this tell us? Well, for one, it tells us that poor balancing of the Sword of Night and Flame was not necessarily intentional and probably was not the part of some brilliant master plan on the part of From Software. It was simply a weapon that they knew was powerful, but that they didn't expect to break the game entirely. Using it turns almost all of the early to mid-game bosses into nothing more than speed bumps, and a few of the late-game bosses will give you a lot of trouble. But even the last boss of the entire game, Elden Beast, 
is a total joke with this loadout if you happen to get there. And I think this is important to note, while some of these late game bosses make the Sword of Night and Flame far less effective, at least against them, the final bosses of the game are very vulnerable to it. So what I tried in this playthrough centered around the Sword of Night and Flame was actually going back to Renala and using a larval tier to respec my character and use a different weapon through those bosses only to respec again back into a loadout specifically calibrated for the Sword of Night and Flame once I reached those last bosses. And it's very powerful. In fact, I was able to beat the last two bosses, Radagon and the Elden Beast, in less than 90 seconds. Don't believe me? I'll let it play in its entirety right now. Look at how stupid broken this weapon is, especially if you know where to stand with the Elden Beast to avoid the extreme damage it can put out. There's a certain spot, at least before this patch that they recently put out, where Elden Beast just doesn't know where you are. It's like stupid broken. I figured this out on my like third or fourth attempt in my first run through of the game. They seem to have patched it out now, but it was very, very broken. Anyway, I'll just let this play. 90 seconds beating the last two bosses of the game. Check it out. Now the second thing we know from this is that even broken weapons aren't consistently broken. After all of my extensive testing in preparation for this video, and after surveying almost 2,000 of you to find out what loadouts you were using, I haven't been able to find a single weapon or buildout that is overpowered throughout the entire game against all bosses. There may be one loadout that demolishes 80% of the bosses, but it's extremely weak to 20% of the bosses, or a loadout that basically is god mode against 15% of bosses, but is total garbage against the other 85%. Now, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that From Software has become known for and has built a reputation upon is that they are extremely obsessive when it comes to attention to detail. Hitboxes are always extremely precise, level design is always intricate, 
it and bosses' attacks and animations are tweaked such that they feel as fair as possible. In some cases, bosses are even tied with their movement speed and pace with the rhythm of the music playing underneath the boss fight, which I find really, really cool. There was a really cool video I saw, I think it was on Game Theory, like years ago with Dark Souls 3, so it was probably like five, six years ago. I don't know, if somebody knows what that video is called, you should link it or mention it in the uh, description box. Maybe just put the title, don't put the link, otherwise YouTube will flag you for spamming. But that video was tremendous, and it basically described how all of these bosses have specific movements and attacks which go in rhythm with the music, which helps for that sort of tribal weirdly intuitive feeling when you're fighting some of these bosses where you just instinctively know to dodge at a specific moment even though there weren't any visible signs of an attack you just feel it and it's because that movement is tied with the rhythm of the music underneath it's extremely impressive that they integrate all of these things so carefully and so finely and it's true that that is definitely present in Elden Ring, with the boss design at least. And that attention to detail is very important, because after all, these games are only fun if the game deals out damage that feels fair. If you were taking on the final boss of the game and they had an attack which 95% of the time does nothing but 5% of the time instantly kills you regardless of your armor, whether you're dodging or your total health, it will just simply kill you no matter what 5% of the time, you would be rightly furious when this attack happens to land because it wasn't fair. And it's my opinion that these games can be hard on the player, but they need to play by the same rules that the player has to play by. If the person playing the game has a stamina bar that limits the number of attacks that they can dish out in a row, the boss should have that same restriction, even if it's under the hood and not visible to the player. And this has indeed been the case for many of these From Software games in the past few years. Bosses have health, they have stamina, they have poise, and their attacks are often limited by their own physical reach. Sure, the bosses may be very powerful and capable of dealing out more damage in a single hit than the player, but they are still limited to the same restraints as the player character. And this level-headed approach to the game's design is not very easy to pull off, and it requires an obsession over every single detail of the game's combat, calculation of damage, the AI timings, and so much more. But the problem with Elden Ring is that they bit off more than they could chew. It seems as though they were able to maintain that qualitative standard with some of the bosses, but they completely missed the mark with others. And furthermore, the scale of the game didn't just affect the balancing of bosses, but also the balancing of weapons, and armor, and summons, and consumables. I have no doubt that if there were half as many weapons in Elden Ring, they all would have been balanced much more accurately at launch, and we likely wouldn't have seen the Sword of Night and Flame break the game for so many players. I can't necessarily blame From Software for making the decision to go bigger and badder than they had ever gone before. After all, they wanted to make this game the craziest thing they had ever created, and they definitely succeeded in that pursuit. But it doesn't change the fact that the game is still too big for them to have balanced properly. And we can see that in the form of all of the broken weapons that they spent months balancing after its launch. Likely, they simply said amongst themselves that any issues discovered with regards to the game's balancing would just be rebalanced and patched after the game came out. After all, they can only do so much playtesting in the office. Even if you have 150 developers playing the game non-stop for days on end, they will only be able to discover so much. 
But if you release that game into the open wild with millions of players trying out every imaginable combination of weapons, attribute buildouts, and boss encounters, you will certainly have a large pool of data to swim through. And I don't know what to think of this either, because I get it, they can't test it all themselves reasonably while maintaining a game of this scale. And I can understand why they might resign themselves to just accepting that it won't be totally balanced at launch, but it will get there eventually. I can understand the pragmatic evaluation and consideration behind that, right? I, I get it. But I still don't like it. To me, it just seems like they're selling us an unfinished game with the promise that they will refine it into a balanced experience in the weeks after you've already given them the money for it. I know that almost every single sane person on this planet would say that it's not a big deal. After all, it's only a few weapons that are broken here and there, but in practical terms, the game is still unfinished. We get pissed off when Bethesda Game Studios does the same thing, releasing a broken game to the public, hoping that mods will fix it or that they can patch it after the game launches. So it seems only fair that we also criticize From Software for doing the same thing, albeit a little less severe because at least their game runs. Oh wait, <laughs> not really. Going from 60 to 27, oh god, did you see that? Oh lord, that was bad. But to bring all of this back to where we began this discussion, what are we to make of these broken weapons being used by players to cheese the game? Is it a bad thing? Is it something players should be chastised for? Are players missing the point of the game entirely by using a build out which turns the player into a boss and every single encounter into a total joke? I spent a lot of time thinking about this and my conclusion is that it's the developer's responsibility to balance the game before giving it to the player. The player's task is to find their way through this world, defeat bosses, and progress through the main campaign until they eventually defeat the final enemy and emerge victorious. Players are going to achieve this goal in any number of ways, by plainly exploring, by obsessively following the main path and avoiding all side content, by grinding out runes to level up as quickly as they can so they can maximize their damage and curb stomp bosses at every turn, by looking up guides on YouTube and TikTok for the most overpowered weapons weapons, and every other possible path to achieving their goal. If the developers don't want the players engaging with one of these choices, they should take steps to prevent it. If you don't want the person playing your game farming areas for XP, make it so the enemies don't respawn immediately, or minimize the payout in that area to make it less lucrative, or add a couple of extra high-level enemies that make farming that area far more difficult, or any other of the numerous possible solutions. If From Software didn't want the player using a broken weapon, nerf the weapon. If the developers don't want players looking up guides online for how to get the best build out, make it so the key items in that build out are themselves very difficult to acquire, requiring skill and determination to claim, perhaps even locked behind very difficult bosses. You'll never be able to fully stop players from looking up guides, but if certain high quality items are only obtainable by defeating difficult enemies, you can at the very least ensure that players will have to engage with the gameplay loop to acquire the best items in the game. And I could keep going, bringing up countless examples of things developers might not want the player to do or use that can be easily addressed, but I think you can get the point by now. If gamers are given access to an overpowered weapon, they will use it. If there is a broken armor set in the game that negates any and all damage, they will find it and use it. If there is an awesome spot to quickly farm out some runes to level up quickly, players will go there 
and do that when they need a couple of extra levels here and there. In my mind, it should not be the player's responsibility to handicap the experience for themselves, especially in a game like Elden Ring, which is not pitched as an open sandbox where you can like tweak the boss difficulty and damage outputs and things like that. This is supposed to be a fairly refined, albeit open, but still it should not be the player's responsibility to handicap their own experience, especially when it comes to things such as what armor to use or what weapons to use. When I see somebody using the Sword of Night and Flame, Kama de Jour, or any of the other plethora bleeding effect loadouts, I don't think that player is doing anything wrong. I just see somebody who's being resourceful and using the tools and exploits that the developers left in the game. Sure, we can say that they should get good and play the game with a weapon that doesn't curb stomp the bosses, but in a way, they sort of did get good. That term has traditionally been used to describe how a player needs to put their head down and just figure it out, stop complaining and do whatever it takes to get over the hurdle they're facing. But this time around, instead of just running at the brick wall trying to run through it, the player simply found a route around the wall. And I don't think that you should demean that player for doing it. They simply found an easier way to overcome the challenge than you did. I think they should probably be lauded for discovering an exploit and an oversight on the developer's part. But even with that said, I don't think cheesing your way through a game like Elden Ring is the path towards having the most fun with it or the most satisfying experience. It is true that if you have a harder time beating a boss and then you still beat that boss, you'll probably feel more satisfied than if you just walked in with an overpowered weapon and killed him in two hits. But that isn't really the quest in a game like Elden Ring. The quest and the task asked of the player is to beat these bosses and progress through the main route towards the final bosses. And however you achieve that goal is up to you. If you happen to find a route that includes some quick and easy bosses because you have a loadout that punishes them in particular, then good for you. It might be hard to hear, but the chief end of a game like Elden Ring is not to have the most satisfying experience with the game. It is to just get through it and survive it. It's all the game asks you to do, and that's all most players will do. They won't actively test themselves with difficult loadouts or hard to use weapons just so they can say that they use that weapon. They're not that concerned with it. There are some players who are concerned with that and will go and actively use the self-flagellating Manichaean self-hatred using weapons that are just miserable to practice and employ. But most players aren't going to do that. And I think that's where I want to leave the discussion for now. We could rant and ramble about using these overpowered swords or taking advantage of different exploits and boss fights, but it's all kind of useless. The answer to the question of what should be done in all of these cases is always going to be the same. From Software needs to patch it and rebalance it. It's too bad that so many players used easier methods of blasting through the first chunks of the game because I do think they ended up having a much more frustrating time later in the game. They likely even missed out on some of the really high quality designs of some of those late game bosses because they were so overcome with frustration that their OP weapons weren't working anymore. But at this point, months after the game's launch, many of these weapons have been patched and they've been rebalanced. From Software has become all too aware of how many of these weapons are broken and they've spent months balancing and rebalancing all of them constantly. 
the last few times I've booted up into the game, it seems as though they've struck a pretty good balance, but considering every time they nerf one weapon, they somehow break another, we're just going to have to wait and see how long it takes before the game actually gets to a truly balanced spot. But setting aside the weapon variety and balancing, let's talk about the pacing for a little bit, because this is also a major problem in Elden Ring, and one that's been touched on by some critics, but not others. Now, regardless of which weapon or loadout you are using at any given moment, it's incredibly important that as you play through the game, the rhythm and pace of the gameplay itself remains somewhat consistent. In previous games, from software has managed this very well. This because they can usually predict fairly closely what level or power the player would be for any given boss encounter. In Elden Ring, it's a little bit different. Now to explain this, I'm going to use one of the greatest tools ever given to man by God. MS Paint. The reason that the developers over at From Software can't guarantee exactly what level a player is going to be for a given area beyond a general idea is because of the freedom given to players to explore the map as they see fit. If the player starts in an area such as this right here and they decide then to explore to the east, players are going to head over here and look for bosses in this general area. Now, as I said, the developers can only really go by rough ideas and estimations of an area's potency based on the player's ability to get through certain hard gates, such as the castle up here. We could say that, okay, this area is going to be our very introductory area where very beginning players are going to explore. As they push on, this area is going to be for slightly higher level players because that's the next area they'll naturally go to. Kalid is so difficult that the majority of players who try to go there are going to immediately get pimp slapped and turn away, so they're just not even going to bother. So we don't have to worry about that. But as they continue exploring and pushing up north, we'll see that there's another hard gate. Players getting through there will need to go through some specific DPS checks, as we described earlier, so we can figure that most players will be around the same level going through this area. And then as they funnel up through this small area here, they'll probably explore this area in a general level that we can predict. Same with this and same with these other areas, specifically the inner capital and the late game version of that area of the map. But what does this tell us? This clunky toddler-esque depiction of the map and its level scaling uh, zones. Well, it tells us one important thing, and that is that these sections are pretty big. And within each of these large sections are numerous bosses. In some of these areas, there's over a dozen bosses that you can find while exploring. And because of that, there's a big variability in terms of their power. So we might have bosses here, 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 and I'll just continue drawing X's as we go around. These aren't actual locations of bosses, but it'll serve the point. So let's say this is all of the bosses that we have in this particular area of the map. Players might start here and let's uh, make this yellow. They might begin by running over here, then they explore to the east, then they run south all the way to this guy, and then they bounce over here and then over here and then up here and then up there and then all the way over here. And then let's say they just totally miss these bosses here and they push on to the next area and continue exploring past the castle. What will then happen is players will continue exploring around the map doing various things. That's what this line is attempting to dictate. And as they do it, they're discovering new bosses and fighting and having a great time. But what will inevitably happen is eventually they will return 
to that area that they started the game in. And when they returned, they might end up going and trying these bosses they hadn't tried before. But the problem is, if you remember how we coded this zone before, they are far too powerful for this area now. We had this area relegated for the early, early games, so we designed the bosses around early game characters, and then we designed this area for higher level characters. And after the player has spent so much time running around in this area up here, now they're so powerful that any of the bosses back in this starting area, specifically these three that they skipped, they're going to be way too easy. And this is where the problem lies. They simply won't be able to reliably predict where the player is going to go next or what power they will be when they explore a given area. As they continue to explore, they're going to backtrack. They're going to go to places they've already been, inevitably find new bosses because there's so many. And a lot of those bosses are not going to be reasonably calibrated for their given difficulty ability. They're going to be too powerful and it's going to be so easy that it's just not that fun. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the only reasonable way of dealing with that would be to use dynamic level scaling. But dynamic level scaling has its pros and cons. For one, it completely eliminates the feeling of accomplishment and feeling as though you've overcome a boss and you are so powerful now that you don't even have to worry about them because they're puny to you. You're so much more powerful than last time. You know, they're nothing. And furthermore, it can also make it so weapon and armor scaling doesn't feel anywhere near as unique. Individual weapon sets beyond basic elemental resistances don't have much of an impact because the bosses will always scale to what your overall level is going to be. So it doesn't really matter if you have the best armor in the game or just really good armor the feeling's going to be about the same. And it's also just generally not in the spirit of these games. One of the things that unifies players of these games together is that we all fight the same bosses and deal with the same problems and overcome the same obstacles. It's one of the reasons we can all kind of relate to each other. So hopefully now you can understand why so many people had so many inconsistent experiences with Elden Ring. For some, a boss like Radon was pretty easy. And for others, it was incredibly hard because they went to that boss arena way sooner than the other player did. It could also be granted that the player went to a boss before or after a major patch hit because the first handful of rebalancings had the negative effect of nerfing some bosses and greatly empowering others. And Radon was probably the best example of this in these early patches in the weeks after the game's launch because he received a patch which attempted to make him easier and more fair, but it ended up greatly reducing his aggression and damage output to the point where it was unreasonably easy. So then from software had a need jerk reaction and overcorrected once again, giving him too much power to the point where the boss felt way harder than he was initially. They also did this with Melania, Blade of Miquela, when they accidentally gave her such an extreme patch that she became unbeatable for about a day and a half. You see, they screwed this patch up so badly, it's, it's unbelievable. What happened is they changed it so that she gained an ability to heal on every single attack that she dealt out instead of just on the attacks that she lands. And if you watch her fight animations for about 10 seconds, as you can see on screen now, you'll see that she throws out a lot of attacks in very quick succession. And this made it so that unless you were a living legend or were using an extremely broken weapon at the time, 
or were using a summon that was extremely powerful itself, you simply could not beat her. You would get her health bar down to about half, and then she would send out a flurry of swipes which recovered her health bar entirely. I will say using Malaketh's Black Blade at plus 10, which has some special moves that reduce max health of the enemy, it didn't even really help that much because the max health reduction eventually reached its limit and she would just refill up to that point. It was extremely frustrating. Even using a magic summon, which duplicates your loadout and character under the control of an AI, didn't help. She was just simply too powerful during this patch. And from Software Agreed, which is why just a few days later, they patched this fight again to correct their mistake. And what really sucks is a lot of players, I'm sure, during this time period got to Melania and just thought that she was stupid difficult and so they abandoned her and considering she's an optional boss they just went about their business and never fought her again because this offered such a terrible experience and left such a bad taste in so many people's mouths. It's unfortunate, but this is what happens when you don't balance the boss fights properly, especially when there's so many bosses that players can have their pick. They're going to come across a boss that's broken and unbalanced and just abandon it. Even if it was an incredible fight or a really good one like Melania is, they never are going to see the end of it because they just assume it's broken and that's that. But I think we've beaten this dead horse enough. It's clear that From Software was a bit out of their depth when it came to balancing this game. It just gives me Call of Duty Warzone vibes, if I'm being honest. Every time they patch one weapon, which is horrifically broken itself, they accidentally, or perhaps not so accidentally, break another weapon. At least in Elden Ring, the weapon which is broken accidentally isn't available for purchase in the in-game store. The point of all of this is to say that players had vastly different experiences with bosses at any given moment because of the inconsistency of the other game's balancing systems thanks to poor optimization on the developer's part because their weapons may have been boosted or nerfed overnight without their knowledge, or simply because the developers didn't expect the player to be at the level they were, whether they were overpowered or underpowered. For some of you, this may not be an issue. It simply is an artifact of games like this that have large open worlds and lots of combat encounters. Some of them will be more difficult than others, and that's absolutely true in almost every single open world game. But Elden Ring, like so many other From Software games, prides itself on allowing the player to craft their own experience with minimal guidance. That means that they are going to hold your hand or explain when you should take on certain bosses or when you should avoid them. It's up to you to determine whether or not you have the ability to defeat a boss like the Tree Sentinel for the first time. But these extreme examples of bosses, which are far more powerful than the player, are just simply not the best examples. After all, I think it's extremely likely that if a player runs into Kaelid only a few hours into the game, they will quickly get the idea that this place is meant for later in the game. They will turn around, explore, beat bosses, and level up only to return later and have an easier time with it. And that's the way it's supposed to work. The frustration comes along when this line is blurred out. As I mentioned, a great example is a boss like Radon. All over social media, people were talking about how difficult this boss was. And as I previously mentioned, his abilities were very, very inconsistent at this time. Furthermore, there was a lot of pressure on players who had more hardcore friends not to use summons of any kind because it was the quote-unquote easy mode 
of Elden Ring, and players didn't want to be teased for using this alleged crutch. And so what inevitably would happen is players would get into this boss fight and they would struggle with it, because all over this arena are summons that you can call to help you with this fight. It's pretty clear the developers intended you to use these summons. But because everybody on social media has been talking for days about how difficult Radon is, these players won't be that surprised because everybody was talking about how hard this boss fight is. So they'll continue hitting their head against the wall without making much progress. Now it may be that the developers intended for you to fight him right around your current level and ability, in which case you should just keep chipping away until you beat him. Maybe you are just having a tough time at the boss and it's not a level imbalance that's causing your frustration. But in this case, there's no way of distinguishing between a really difficult boss and one that's just overpowered for where you are currently in your journey through the game. There aren't any level markers, narrative gates, or DPS checks that stand in your way. So if you choose to take this boss on, it's up to you to determine whether or not you have a reasonable chance of beating them. All told, this can lead to a lot of player frustration. What may seem initially like a difficult boss, but one that can be overcome, may actually turn out to just be one that you weren't meant to take on for another 30 hours of gameplay. And another difficult boss may initially appear as though it's meant to be taken on in 30 hours more of gameplay, when in reality it's actually balanced for where the player currently is and he's just difficult. But what will inevitably happen is the player will abandon this boss fight only to take it on later once they've become overpowered for it. And this all results in one key phenomenon, and that is that the player won't get the thrill of your standard Dark Souls game of working on a boss until they've mastered it. There's no way I can look at this and say it was part of some master plan on the part of From Software. It's just an artifact of the game being so big that they couldn't balance it fully, and as a result, almost every single player had an experience with the game in terms of its difficulty and accessibility that was very different from every other player's. Some people found the game really easy, some people found it very difficult. It's almost impossible to predict which you were other than looking at the specific weapons you were using and the time at which you played the game, whether it was close to launch or a while after. But the most remarkable and impressively surprising thing I discovered while preparing for this critique and surveying thousands of you guys who are fans of this channel, thank you to everybody who responded by the way, is that the majority of players were able to self-balance the game in spite of all of the problems and the clunky balancing on the developer's part. You see, players did so by balancing the experience to one that was much more easy than previous titles because they were given the freedom to do so. In the aforementioned survey, where I asked 2,000 fans of what they thought of the game, I also asked all of you guys how difficult you guys found the game to be. I also further clarified the question by sorting out who used summons, OP weapons, etc. And something remarkable became very apparent. Regardless of the weapons, abilities, or level a player was at the end of the game, the average player reported a difficulty that floated around 7 out of 10. And comparing that with other surveys I've done for other From Software games, such as Dark Souls or Sekiro, those games averaged a difficulty rating between 8 and 9 out of 10. So it's clear the majority of players found this game much easier, even though they were balancing it for themselves. In fact, probably the most interesting thing I found in the entire survey was that players who were using summons and overpowered weapons tended to rate the game as more difficult than those who weren't using those assets. 
As far as I can tell, this is probably because players who would have previously given up on a game like Elden Ring were actually playing through it, but they were able to use those tools to get through the game, whereas in a game like Dark Souls 3, they would have simply given up because it was too difficult and didn't offer them any tools to make it easier. And this, while I think unintentional, actually makes me reconsider whether or not this is a bad thing. Like, it's opened up this franchise and this style of game to a whole new group of players who wouldn't have played these games before, and those players are still rating the game as more difficult, even though they're using broken weapons and weapons that sort of are allegedly are on the easy mode of Elden Ring. But players are still playing the game and even rating it more difficult than other players who are using objectively more difficult to use weapons. But the overarching point is that players seem to automatically balance the game into an experience level that is more enjoyable for them automatically. And that difficulty for a game like Elden Ring seems to be at about 7 out of 10. If players want to have a more difficult experience because initially it feels like a 5 out of 10, they will put automatic handicaps on themselves to make the game harder. They won't use summons, they won't use bleeding effect weapons, they'll avoid weapons like the Sword of Night and Flame, and they'll go through the game like that such that it feels like a 7 out of 10 to them. Whereas other players who initially would have given up on a game like Elden Ring will use the Sword of Night and Flame, will use summons, will use all of these other assets given to them, and they will balance the game down to a 7 to 8 out of 10 for them, whereas initially it might have felt like a 10 out of 10. Again, it doesn't excuse the fact that the game is freakishly unbalanced and borderline broken in a lot of cases, but it still is interesting to me that players quantifiably and verifiably through this survey are confirmed to be balancing the game in a way that's similar across skill levels, which I just found really interesting. But with that, we need to get into a discussion of how easy the game is, generalized difficulty, and accessibility, which is a very hot topic, especially around this game, because the sort of old guard of From Software fans don't tend to be that welcoming to noobs. In order to play these games and get welcomed into the community, usually you need to prove yourself and play through these games without tons of crutches or assistance. But Elden Ring took many strides to seemingly make the game easier than any of the previous titles. But before we get into that, a quick thank you once again to our sponsor, Salad. So were you a little sussed out by that Salad ad read that I did earlier in the video? Well, don't worry. I was a little suspicious of them when I first found out about them. I wasn't sure what to think of it. I mean, you're downloading software that's going to use your computer hardware when you're not around. Like, it might be a little suspicious. But I decided to investigate, and Salad actually makes sure that you can investigate freely because they want you to be comfortable with their software and services. Not only do they offer their software through open source channels so that you can investigate it yourself if you happen to be capable of doing something like that, but they are also official partners of Discord. They are proud members of the Blockchain Game Alliance and on Trustpilot one of the premier places to find out if a company is legit. They have 4.4 stars out of 5, and that's out of 2,000 plus reviews from real verified users. Furthermore, if you want to just help make the world a better place using your computer while you're AFK, you can actually set it to automatically redeem donations to individual charities. If you want to use your computer to generate revenue for the Trevor Project, St. Jude's Children's Hospital, 1% for the Planet, Breast Cancer Action, Oasis, the National Autistic Society, you name it, 
you can do that. It's that easy. Again, check them out at the link in the video description box below or in the pinned comment. And again, use referral code ELDEN when you sign up so that they know I sent you. Now, the first thing I want to do when discussing accessibility is go through this survey that I did and I've mentioned a few times. I already made a big video on it, so instead of just rehashing that whole thing, I'm just going to play you the important parts of that video. So here we go. Okay, so by default, we have a bunch of data collected in this Google spreadsheet survey thing, which breaks everything down into basic pie charts, which is good for basic questions. If we're looking at single items that we're trying to evaluate, like how did you play this particular game? We find that 6% of players actually were using a mouse and keyboard, something totally baffling to me, because I don't know how you play these games on mouse and keyboard without going totally insane. But this isn't really that useful for us because what we want to do here is we want to be able to break out the answers with a little more specificity. What I mean is that I want to be able to look at how players rated the game's difficulty, whether they use summons all the time, sometimes, or whether they didn't touch summons at all, and figure out if using summons actually led to players thinking that the game was easier than players who didn't use summons at all. And the only way we can really do that is by taking all of the data out, putting it into a table, and importing it into Excel, which is what I've done here. Trust me, it's more interesting than it looks. I'm gonna make this easy to understand, or at least try to. Basically, every single response in this data table is in a specific row. So this is one person's answers. This is another person's answers. And what we can do is we can actually set up these filtration systems where we can filter out specific answers to specific questions and remove those respondents from consideration for whatever we're looking at. In this case, for example, we only want to consider people who have played Elden Ring in some capacity because why would we care what somebody who hasn't touched the game thinks about the game's difficulty. It wouldn't make any sense to evaluate that. So we're going to remove all of the respondents who didn't play the game at all. So boom, just like that, they're cut out of the survey, at least for this data collection that we're doing here. Then we can filter over and we can evaluate whether or not somebody has actually played through the entire game, or at least finished the main boss and gotten through the main campaign. If we want to just evaluate people who have finished the game, we can uncheck that box for no, and now we're only looking at people who have played the game and finished it. Then we can break it down even further. We can see how hard they would rate the game based on these responses. And then we can even filter out based on whether or not they used summons all the time, sometimes, or not at all because it's easy mode or it's just not in line with the build. And we can filter these out and get averages for the difficulty ratings that they gave accordingly. So the first thing I want to do is I just want to get a raw average of people who have finished the game and how they would rate the difficulty. So what we do is we run a subtotal average function because if you use just a regular average function in the spreadsheet, it'll also calculate it with the hidden cells. So you have to use this subtotal function. It's stupid, but it just is how it is. So we run that and it'll only calculate it based off of the cells that are visible in this L column, which is how hard would you rate the game having finished it? And that brings a total of 7.45 as our raw average for how people would rate the difficulty, which I don't know about you, that's significantly easier than I would have expected. I would think that most FromSoft games are probably eight to nine, probably closer to nine on the difficulty scale. But the fact that Elden Ring's average rating comes out to 7.45 out of 10 
it's it's just way lower than I would have expected. And it reaffirms the idea that Elden Ring is the easiest game of all of the FromSoft games that have come out, at least in modern memory. But let's filter this out even more and evaluate it on individual bases of whether or not they use summons all the time, sometimes, or never. And then we're gonna do the same thing for players that didn't finish the game and only have played it partially to figure out what they thought of the difficulty. So we're gonna go here, we're gonna use all of the time to evaluate how many of those people are there and how they rated the game's difficulty and you see the average pops over to 7.73 so we'll plug that in then we'll do the same thing for sometimes see what that average pops out to 7.41 god damn it i love excel <laughs> and we could filter it out even further so i added two options for people to say no i don't use summons they're easy mode and then other people to say no i don't use them just because they don't work with my build out we can evaluate them individually. I don't think it's that significant. I mean, if we do, no, it's not aligned with my build, people give it a 7.27. If we say, no, it's easy mode, then the average comes out to 7.18. Make of that what you will. But if we break this down and include both of the options, it averages out to 7.21, which is, is interesting. I don't know about you, but what stands out to me is that the more people are using summons, the harder they rate the game, which is like the opposite of what I would have thought. I would have thought that people who are using summons will find the game to be easier because if you're using like Mimic Tears plus 10 or even like plus four, you can get through some of the final end game bosses without much trouble at all. So I would have thought that they would rate the game easier, but they rate the game harder which is interesting. <laughs> I'm saying interesting because I don't want to spoil my conclusion and why I think this is the case. Let's run the numbers for people who have not finished the game and see what those numbers come out to. Approximately 10 hours later. And boom, there we go. Uh, it's in line roughly with what we would expect. And that is that I would say by the time you get to the end of the game, you'll probably rate it harder than if you're in the middle of the game, whether it's 20 hours in or 80 hours in because there's some tough bosses towards the end of Elden Ring, just spoiler warning, letting you know, it gets tough towards the end, um, at least for most players. And that's what we see here. On average, people who have finished the game are rating it harder than people who have not finished it, which is in line with what we would expect. Of course, like the people who never use summons and then these data points, it, it's all kind of blurry just because there aren't that many respondents take it or leave it it seems fairly close though people are rating the game about seven to seven and a half in terms of difficulty regardless of where they are in their run and even though it's very minute it still holds true that people who have not finished the game are rating it harder the more they used summons which is just weird and interesting. So what does this actually mean? What can we extrapolate from this data and how do we explain that the more people are using summons, the harder they're rating the game? To me, it's pretty simple. It's that people who struggle with Elden Ring and find the game difficult are using summons to get through the game and to beat it. So if you're having an easy time with the game, you aren't using summons because they make the game so much easier that it's just not fun anymore. But if you're struggling, summons give you the ability, the accessibility to actually get through the game and finish it. 
And this is why Elden Ring has been called the most accessible From Software title ever made. And it's true because they've given players so many tools that they can make the game into whatever they want. And what seems to be the case from this data is that people are regulating their own gameplay experience to about a 7.45 average of difficulty. So whether you find the game easy or really hard, people are using tools or avoiding tools to balance the game out to about that seven and a half out of 10 in terms of difficulty, which is, it seems, the sweet spot for what's enjoyable. So people who find the game easy avoid these tools to bring the balance of the difficulty up to seven and a half, and people who find the game too hard are using tools to bring the difficulty level down to 7.5, which is where it's most enjoyable. In effect, it's just like a really weird and convoluted difficulty slider, if that makes sense, because the player is able to make the experience what they want it. If they wanna play it on hard mode, they can play it on hard mode. If they wanna play it on easy mode, they can play it on easy mode. But it's not to say that anybody's missing out on the game or missing out on the point of the game. It's that people are calibrating it for what's most enjoyable to them. And I think that's a good thing. At the end of the day, what is in my mind the most important thing is that this game is amazing. This game is great. And more people are playing it and have been enabled to play it than would have ever been possible before. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's something that should be praised. And at the end of the day, people just need to trust gamers that they're going to calibrate and, and make the experience the most enjoyable for them. Of course, that's not to say that you should make the game totally unguided and totally ridiculous, but it is to say that players, on the mo for the most part, are going to make the experience what they want it to be. If they're playing Skyrim, they're going to explore or do the story or craft or do all of these other things to make the game what they want it to be and to have the most fun with it. And for these big sandbox games that give tons of player agency and freedom, that's good. That's a good thing. It's not a negative. And that's why it's important to evaluate Elden Ring individually and somewhat separately from the rest of the From Software entries uh, from the last decade or so, because they're just, it's just different. Those games are different. Elden Ring is a totally different animal. Now, like I said, this survey makes it very clear and readily apparent that this is, according to most players, the easiest game that From Software has made in a long time. I'm sure there will be plenty of comments below that argue it was actually the hardest that some of you have ever played, harder than Dark Souls 3, harder than Sekiro, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure that's true for you. I'm not doubting that experience, but we are looking at the general trend in the overall experience of most players. Just because your experience contradicts this trend doesn't mean that the trend isn't real. But going back to what I was saying, I'm not convinced that the game's lack of consistent difficulty was intended, but I do think it served the game very well in the long run. It was sort of an accident that was happy. A happy accident. We don't, we don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. Because players were able to simply leave a boss arena if they grew frustrated with that boss so that they could go off, explore, or do other things only to return when they felt as though they stood a decent chance, players were able to self-regulate the difficulty of these encounters down to the previously mentioned 7 out of 10 range. To one player, 7 out of 10 difficulty might mean taking on Radon at level 60, and for another, it might be at level 80, while another may not even attempt it until level 100. But all of these players still rate the game 
as a generalized difficulty of 7 out of 10. Now, I can understand why a lot of dedicated, hardcore, long-term fans of From Software games would find this whole shift in philosophy a little frustrating. These games were previously played by a very select few who enjoyed the soul-crushing grind and the wonderful feeling that washed over upon a boss's hard-earned defeat. But with this game, your average player who would have given up on previous titles was able to get into it, and they were able to blast through it using some very powerful weapons. It may have taken them a while, and they may have been 40 levels higher than the experienced player for a given encounter, but they were still able to play it. And I take this as a good thing, actually. I love video games, and I love sharing them with people. The idea that a larger group of people could experience the same thing that I love, albeit in a slightly different way, is one that fills me with joy and not contempt. Regardless, love it or hate it, this seems to be the way that From Software is going. They are trying to make their games more accessible and more approachable to more players, and I personally think that's a good thing, so long as it doesn't simplify the game systems to a point where it turns into, like, an Assassin's Creed style of dumbing down gameplay systems where like the free running disappears and there's no actual assassinations and it's just a copy and pasted Viking simulator. Like as long as they don't go that route, I'll stay happy. Furthermore, it makes good business sense because you can sell a lot more copies if a lot more people find your game appealing. And it's not just the level scaling and then the broken weapons, but it's also other additions such as the wondrous physic flasks or countless items with stat effects and temporary buffs from quests that are more subtle. But all are welcome additions and generally make the game easier and more approachable so long as players can find those items and abilities and use them. But perhaps the biggest change and the most polarizing in the game is summons. Now, any discussion of difficulty with regards to Elden Ring will be incomplete unless you mention summons and co-op, which are two sides of the same coin. We'll touch on both co-op and summons, but the majority of this time will be spent discussing summons because it's what most of you guys said that you used, while co-op was more of an afterthought. Summons are pretty straightforward. You collect them throughout the world, often they are protected by large hordes of enemies or even bosses, and most of them can be leveled up again to gain power and health and different abilities. From the moment the game launched, people said that this was effectively Elden Ring's easy mode. The general tone was that if you used these things in boss fights, you were a little bitch. And I find this extremely stupid. You can look at any number of the interviews that Hidetaka Miyazaki gave leading up to the game's launch, and you will see that he regularly talked about how these summons were an intended gameplay mechanic. He put these things in here to be used, just like he added the Flask of Crimson Tears for healing or the Flask of Wondrous Physic for certain perks that can be swapped out. As we said before, one of the coolest things that this game has to offer is the self-regulation of its difficulty, whether or not it was intentional. If you find the game too easy while using the healing flask, you can certainly go without it and simply not use it, but that's your choice to put that handicap on yourself. In the same vein, summons receive the same major treatment. If you want to avoid using them, that's good for you. But don't put other people down for using this system that the developers put in place. I'm just going to be honest with you. It doesn't make you seem cool. It doesn't make you seem capable or more badass. You just seem like a douche. So don't do it. You know what it's like? It's like all those people who you go out to dinner with and they're like, oh, I ordered, uh, I ordered this steak, the same steak that you got, but... Uh, oh. You eat the mushrooms on the side. 
okay okay i mean yeah you're basically ruining the meal but okay yeah no you do your thing whatever loser don't eat those mushrooms that's stupid you're stupid for doing that whatever but like the chef put the mushrooms there they added that to that dish they intended for you to eat the mushrooms with the steak you being like, I, I'm not convinced. I think that's really sucky. I don't think you should use the mushrooms. I, I don't think you should eat them. That doesn't make you seem like a savant or somebody who knows something I don't. It just makes you look like a douchebag. So don't bash people for using summons because the developers put summons in here to be used. Why would they put a gameplay system in the game that they don't want you to use? That doesn't make any damn sense at all. Personally, I really like these summons. And so did most of you, according to the survey, with the majority of you guys voting that they should keep these summons in future games. Depending on which summon you have equipped for a given boss encounter, they can pull aggro, distracting the boss for a short time, which allows you to get in some hits. And they can even greatly vary the combat experience during boss fights in general in really cool ways. But generally, often, it just feels like you're playing in co-op with a strange-looking companion, and it works really well. I haven't delved into the game's code or anything, but I wouldn't be surprised if bosses receive the same AI tweaks and summons receive the same generalized damage reduction as when you play through a boss fight in co-op. It really seems like From Software just wanted a system where they could have players who aren't playing in co-op receive the same gameplay benefit as players who are playing in co-op. Furthermore, there are a lot of these summons, and many of them do different things. Some of them may be rotten dogs that inflict rotting damage that slowly builds over time, and considering some bosses are particularly weak to this rotting damage, it can be very, very useful. Others could be tanky humanoids that are primarily meant for absorbing damage while you dish it out, and others are meant to be more versatile and well-rounded, such as the Mimic tier, which has received much attention since the game's launch because it is extremely powerful when leveled up properly. And I will say the reason that the Mimic tier went viral in so many TikToks and people saying it was so broken, it ruins the game, blah, blah, blah. It's because some people posted TikToks and videos of them using these Mimic tiers to uh, destroy early game bosses where basically they summoned it and then let it just run off and kill a boss single-handedly. The player didn't even have to deal any damage at all. Now I tested this myself where I started new game plus and then used a plus 10 Mimic tier to go and fight say the Tree Sentinel. And I had less dramatic results than most of these TikToks that went viral. So what it seems like happened to me is one of two things. Either from Software nerfed the Mimic tier in between when that TikTok was filmed and when I was experimenting with it, which is possible, you never know, or they were simply so overpowered for that early game boss in New Game Plus that it never stood a chance. Like, they were so overpowered for it that it was going to be ridiculous whether the Mimic tier was the one dealing the damage or the player was dealing the damage. I think it's possibly a combination of the two, but it just goes to show you don't trust everything you see on the internet. Regardless, I think these summons are really cool. Sure, some of them seemed extremely powerful when the game first launched, only to receive serious reductions in their potency later, but I think they are still fun to use, and it's really refreshing to see something new and a crazy different way of dealing with boss fights from these developers who are experts in boss fights. And to all of those people who are like, no, summons need to go away, summons need to disappear, they're easy mode, blah blah blah, for one, you are in the vast minority of players. I surveyed thousands of you, 
Very few people said that they needed to get rid of these things. Most players really, really liked summons. And secondly, the developers seemed to like summons so much that not only did they introduce them into their latest game, which I'm sure took lots of development time and practice and, and effort, but also they built an entire boss fight around summons in the form of Radon, where you can just like run around and summon a handful of, of different characters to help you in the boss fight. They seem pretty proud of this system and it works really well. It's like a weird sort of Pokemon thing and I like it. You know, you collect these summons, you level them up and then you send them out to help you in a boss fight. It's cool. And the only thing I could say is that I would hope that in the next game that we get, there are more varied types and archetypes of summons uh, and more customization options. You know, if it was something like you could actually collect different enemies or mini bosses that you've fought to help you in summon form and then you can give them different weapons and things and they basically become like AI companions that you can summon to help you with big boss fights. I think that could be really, really cool, and I would love to see it. As for co-op, it works almost as well as you would expect. The one problem that I did encounter regularly was that there were some major issues getting friends to actually summon into the world. It was odd. We would be standing in a place where you can summon each other. I would throw down my sign to summon somebody into my world, but it wouldn't display on their end. But when they set down their sign to summon me into their world, it would show up just fine. And then when I restarted the game, it was working the way you would expect. Just little things like that where it didn't generally work exactly how you would expect it to. There seemed to be occasional bugs and slight headaches. But once we were properly summoned into the other player's world, I never really encountered any major issues. No server issues, no connection drops, nothing. It worked really, really well. Zero lag. Nothing but good things to say about it. On the whole, co-op works really, really well. I think it really added to my overall experience with the game in a positive way. And there's not much else to say about it other than it's really fun to play Elden Ring with your friends. And seeing how their loadouts work and their weapon choice works in combination and tandem with your choices. It's really, really interesting. And it's not quite on the level of something like Monster Hunter World or Monster Hunter Rise, where you're able to fling each other into the air, reposition together, and use combat moves in tandem, but it's still really, really good. If you haven't tried co-op in Elden Ring, I highly recommend that you give it a shot, because it's pretty fun. Especially in some of those big-name boss fights, it's extremely exhilarating to work together with somebody to overcome the challenge. Boom! costume change. How cool is that? Now I want to discuss the world design. After all, exploration is one of the major elements of this game's gameplay loop. I actually already made a big video about the 42nd rule of Elden Ring's open world, and all of the data that I collected helped prove my point that Elden Ring follows in one of the same design trends as most of the other major successful open world games of the last decade. Now instead of just rehashing the whole thing, I'm instead just going to show you the important parts of that video to make it easier for everybody. If you're one of the quarter million people that have already seen the video, first of all, thank you for watching that. I appreciate you. And secondly, this might seem a little bit redundant, but it's a good refresher. So here we go. Today we're going to be doing an experiment, and it's something I've done for other games like Red Dead Redemption 2, Breath of the Wild, The Witcher 3, Skyrim, all sorts of open world games that I find their worlds to be relatively compelling. And the premise is pretty simple at its core. So back in late 2017, a documentary was made on the development of The Witcher 3, and specifically how they designed the open world. It's a no-clip documentary called Designing the World of The Witcher 3. Phenomenal. Highly recommend you check it out. Truly, 
fantastic. And in the video, some of the designers discuss how they made the world feel dense enough to be interesting, but also large enough and with enough room to breathe that it didn't feel oppressive or like it was just a collectathon. And this is something we as gamers, I think, take for granted a lot of the time. We just play through an open world game and assume that it's balanced because it is. We don't pay attention to the minutia of it, but a lot of the time there are very strict rules, guidelines, and techniques that the developers have used to create these worlds and make them feel alive and interesting to boot. The team that put together The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt used something they called internally the 40-second rule, and it's very simple to understand, but to explain it quickly and efficiently, I'm going to use the greatest tool given to man since fire. That is, of course, MS Paint. I know, it's 2022. This is the best we got, people. Deal with it. We're going with it. So the premise is pretty simple. The player character can only travel a set distance within 40 seconds or so. Let's represent that distance with this line. Let's say this is just running on the ground freely as Geralt, no horse or mount that'll complicate things a little bit. But for basic demonstration purposes, this line represents how far you can run in 40 seconds. The 40 second rule of open world game design is pretty simple. All it says is that within this travel time or in this distance, you should hit something interesting that diverts your attention, pulls you away. In effect, something that's going to try to distract you from where you're going. A great way to demonstrate this would be, for instance, if you have destination A and destination B and you're traveling between these two places, if something interesting pops up, it should try to divert you away from that objective. If you're just trying to run somewhere, something should happen that's interesting enough that your attention gets pulled off. And you'll notice this in all sorts of open world games where you're trying to just run somewhere, but you keep getting distracted. That's what this is. Game designers want that to happen because it makes the world feel more alive and more interesting because instead of just running from point A to point B, you're actually doing more things as you travel. It's about the journey, not just the destination, right? And how game designers will use this is they will take that 40 second travel distance, draw a circle around the starting point and try to place things along the circumference of the circle. So for example, if we start at location X right here, that's where the player is standing when we're designing the world. This is where we assume he's going to be. If we then go and draw out that distance, say 30 seconds, we can travel this far. We want to make sure that no matter which direction we travel, travel, something interesting will happen. And the way we can demonstrate that is with a circle. The whole premise of this though, is that along the circumference of this circle, we should have something interesting that diverts the player's attention scattered along it. And if this is roughly 40 seconds, I don't know if this is exactly the distance you could run in 40 seconds, maybe close, maybe it needs to be bigger. I'm not sure, but you could see that along the circle, there are things very closely placed within that range. In reality, 40 seconds might be closer to this, in which case, you can see exactly how this type of thing lines up from the fulcrum point in the middle where you have caves scattered around treasure, you have combat encounters close by, fast travel posts, you have herbs that you can collect, all sorts of things that are placed along the circumference of this circle. So within 40 seconds of exploring, something new will happen. Now I've tested this with a bunch of different games. Most of them tend to follow 30 to 40 seconds, especially the games that are really good and have compelling open world. Breath of the Wild, Sky 
Skyrim, The Witcher 3, all fall into this range of roughly 30 to 40 seconds in between moments of interest. A game like Red Dead Redemption 2, on the other hand, stretched it all the way to 80 seconds between moments of interest that diverted your attention, which encouraged the same feeling of the world being huge and also very desolate and empty, considering it was very wild and open in that map. But that worked with that game and that setting, so it was okay. But the latest open world game to release that's kind of captivated the audience's hearts and minds is Elden Ring. And it was the first real foray into a full-fledged open world for FromSoft, at least in any meaningful sense. You could say Sekiro was sort of open-ended, you could go different places, but it was still very linear in terms of design. This is full open world, explore to your heart's content, do whatever you want. And it's fantastic for the record. So I did what any well-adjusted YouTuber does. I pulled out an Excel spreadsheet and a stopwatch and got to work. For the record, this is really subjective, okay? Like, I'm not trying to claim that this is some sort of scientific objective study with irrefutable results, okay? This is my results after my own experience and my gameplay. Your results may vary. I don't know why you'd want to do this yourself. I don't know why I do it either, other than that some of you guys find it really interesting. But for the record, these are very subjective results. That being said, how this worked is that I played through Elden Ring for a set period of time, about five to six hours, roughly speaking. And during that time, I wasn't trying to hunt down bosses. I wasn't trying to follow the guiding light to get through the main story. I was focused on exploration, okay? Unadulterated, purely free exploration. And then what I did is I watched back through the recording and every time something diverted my attention away, I would stop the time and record how long it had been since the last thing pulled my attention away from just exploring. And then after that encounter was done, after I had collected whatever object or dealt with the enemy, or if it was a boss after I had killed the boss or got fed up with it, I then restarted the timer once I began exploring again, and I stopped the timer when I found something else that was interesting. And that's basically how this worked. I timed it out and narrowed everything down to a collection of roughly 223 individual entries and moments of interest over the course of this like five and three quarter hour session. So then what I did is I put all of the times in between moments of interest into a spreadsheet into one column. I labeled each event in order that it occurred and then I charted it and then I ran a regression analysis and ended up with this lovely spreadsheet right here. I love it when we have a hypothesis specifically that a good open world tends to float around 40 seconds in between moments of interest and then we test it and it ends up being confirmed. That's exactly what happened here. You can see the times were spread out and it ends up looking quite random in between most moments of interest ranging anywhere from like seven, eight seconds between things that pulled my interest. Maybe it was an item and then I round the corner, look around and I find an enemy close by. It could be something like that or these big stretches of like 80 seconds where it was just a big open field and I'm just riding and taking in the views looking up at the vistas and perhaps my attention is not specifically on finding things on the ground or anything but it's just taking in the world and the beauty that they've created here but this is all about trends individual instances aren't that important it's about the average because that tells us roughly what the actual distance is on a rolling average across the world itself because in some areas the time will be less because it's more narrow 
narrow in other areas it'll be much more spread out because the areas are really open it's the average that we care about and sure enough the average comes out to roughly 37.18 seconds in between events of interest that divert your attention which is exactly what we would predict if this game was adhering to the 40 second rule of open world games which is that in pretty much every game I've ever tested that has a compelling and interesting open world they fall into this guideline whether it's Fallout New Vegas Skyrim The Witcher 3 they're all in this realm and there's a reason for it it's because this is what players find captivating and interesting and compelling and this is what drives them to keep exploring for whatever reason our little monkey brains are just trained to really want to continue exploring when there's something interesting every 30 to 40 seconds if there's too much time in between moments of interest we kind of daze off and lose focus and we find it boring and empty and if it's too tightly packed together we sort of get overwhelmed and it feels too much like a video game and it doesn't feel like an actual world worth exploring all of these other stats aren't particularly important for us I mean we can look at the standard error the coefficients p values t stats f values what the percentile of each output was what the standard residuals were for an experiment quote unquote like this those numbers are not really useful because I mean again this isn't like a scientific thing this is just a youtuber with a stopwatch and a spreadsheet going through and trying to find out roughly how much time is between moments of interest and so in that pursuit I think it's pretty compelling at least I think it is I mean I, I think it is I think it is. But that's about it. I mean, we would predict that Elden Ring being a compelling open world game would have things spaced out roughly about 40 seconds because that's what most compelling, interesting open worlds have it spaced out at. And sure enough, when we test it, that's what we see. Now, one of the other things we have to mention when we are discussing the open world traversal and exploration in a game such as Elden Ring is the effect that the community has on the experience for most players. You see, it's common in many open world games that players will eventually start looking online for where the best items are, where there are powerful weapons, interesting locations that hold unique set pieces, or even items, or even something fun like Easter eggs. Especially in the age of TikTok, it's increasingly common to become aware of some of these special locations, even if one isn't seeking them out, because you'll simply be browsing your feed, and you will see one of these videos come across your screen explaining how to get one of the best items in the game. And just like that, even though you didn't mean to, you've been exposed to a spoiler of where you can find something very valuable. Now this has been true for most games in the last decade, especially since everybody pretty much got cell phones in the last 15-20 years. But it's especially true for Elden Ring. I can't think of the last time there was so much content that flooded social media surrounding a singular game release. It was probably Red Dead Redemption 2, if I'm being honest, because back then when the game released, it was also everywhere. Even South Park did an episode about the game, which was really, really funny. Now I, and it seems many others, were initially frustrated by having our feeds just flooded with content on this game because so much stuff was spoiled. I felt like I couldn't be on social media at all without having things shown to me that I didn't want to be shown, or without having cool locations suggested or cool items shown off before I naturally found them. I'm one of those players who likes discovering these things organically, while meandering around the wastes, but 
you would be hard-pressed to completely avoid any spoilers surrounding item locations or bosses in Elden Ring over the last few months. But I eventually had my mind opened up to something I hadn't considered before, and it was when I was speaking to my brother-in-law Quincy. Hi Quincy, if you ever see this. I was speaking with him at one point in the few weeks after the game had launched, and he put forward an idea that I hadn't considered before. Specifically, that the community discussion of the game is in and of itself a feature of these From Software games. In other words, one of the things that makes From Software games so cool is the community. The fact that everybody can work together to figure out the best strategies for certain bosses and areas. And the fact that From Software will withhold so much information from the player, especially narratively and in terms of structure, such as where you're supposed to go next, all suggest that they are trying to encourage the community to make up the difference. The developers could have put in a simple step-by-step quest guide with markers to show where players are supposed to go next after every single boss fight, but they didn't do that. And if you've played any of the other games, the mere thought of such an addition probably is enough to make you cringe. And that's because the wandering and exploration is part of the experience these games have to offer. And for many, the community is part of it too. The community that helps them navigate these meandering passageways. So while I used to be very frustrated by the lack of guidance and seeming obsession with the vague storytelling that From Software puts forward, I've actually come to appreciate it in a new light. If you're exploring the world of Elden Ring and the lands between, I don't think there's anything wrong with looking up where you should collect, for example, larval tears. These things are necessary to respec your character after you defeat Renala, Queen of the Full Moon. And most players will probably have a few of these in their inventory by the time they defeat her, but as the game goes on, and if you're like me, you like experimenting with different loadouts, you'll probably be using a lot of these tiers. While I would have preferred that respecking were free, if I'm being honest, or perhaps it had a rune cost or something that was a little easier to collect, and also that there were other systems in place such as hot swappable loadouts akin to Monster Hunter World, I'm willing to work with this system and I think it works better than it has in previous games. You know, at least you can respec your character if you want to. A lot of other games like this from From Software and from many other developers too, just kind of say, oh well, if you don't like the way your character turned out, you're gonna have to wait till New Game Plus or you're just gonna have to start over entirely. I personally see nothing wrong with looking up where to collect these tiers, which is my broader point here. Some purists might say that it's cheap or unfair to look up where these items are, but based on my survey of all of you, it seems like the overwhelming majority of players do this and don't seem to have a problem with it. It's not like players are looking up the item code to give it to themselves through console commands. You look up where these items are located, and usually you have to defeat an enemy or a group of enemies before you even get to it. And this to me suggests that the developers were aware that a lot of players would be doing this, so they tried to counterbalance the ease of discovery with the difficulty in acquiring. Like we discussed earlier with trying to balance out the ease of acquiring high-level gear or loot. In this case, the larval tiers have this applied, but the weapons and armor pieces, which are, I would argue, more valuable, don't have this careful consideration of being guarded by enemies or placed in really difficult to find areas. There are some weapons that are hard to find, but writ large, it's mostly just a matter of sprinting to the area where they're held, grabbing it, and bugging out. At least when we're talking about some of the most broken weapons in the game. There are some weapons that are locked behind specific boss encounters, or behind doors that are only accessible after boss fights, but writ large, for the weapons that were really broken on launch day, 
they were pretty easy to acquire. My broader point is just simply that I think it's totally okay if you want to look up an online guide to figure out where you need to go to collect something like a larval tier, especially because the developers took the careful consideration to go in and place them intentionally behind boss encounters, behind enemies, in places that you basically have to earn the larval tier even if you know where it is. I just wish they had done this for every valuable item in the game instead of just a few weapons and then the larval tiers. I wish that they had put more intention behind where they placed every item. Now we briefly touched on level scaling and of course on respecking your character with those larval tiers. So let's discuss leveling in general now. The leveling system in Elden Ring is pretty similar to their past games. You start with a pre-built class or you construct it from scratch. You build out your character in the character creator, which is fun, but doesn't really matter because you're going to be underneath a ton of armor for the majority of the game. But nonetheless, it's a nice addition and the ability to customize your character is fun. As you play through the game and acquire runes, which as I said earlier, are this game's version of XP, souls, or blood echoes from previous games, you will spend them to level up your character, with each level raising the amount of runes necessary to level up again. By the end of the game, you will need over 100,000 runes for a single level. And this is all par for the course and very normal for From Software games and action RPGs alike. As you level up, you'll be able to take on higher level enemies, which are much more difficult, but also have higher rune payouts, which is good because you'll need more runes to continue leveling up as you grow in strength. And again, this is very, very normal. Nothing strange about this. The frustration comes in that as you level up higher and higher, the return on investment for each point drops, eventually capping out almost entirely with a hard cap, at which point it's basically useless to continue putting points into that column. Again, this is par for the course when it comes to From Software games, hard caps and soft caps are nothing new. Dark Souls 3 had soft caps and hard caps within the overarching range of applicable points, and beyond blind experimentation or outside research, you weren't informed of when these soft caps or hard caps were actually hitting. Now, I haven't done a survey or anything to figure out what most players think of these caps, but after asking a good number of my friends, most of them were aware that there were caps that basically reduced the value of points as you leveled higher and higher, but they thought of it as more of a logarithm rhythmic scale. They didn't think it was multiple soft and hard caps in tandem as you level up the more you know. But what are these caps in Elden Ring specifically? Well, they vary per stat that you're looking at. So it's going to be different for vigor, for endurance, strength, intelligence, dexterity, all of it's going to be different. You see, all of these can be leveled up to level 99, but you don't want to max them out beyond these hard caps. Otherwise, your return on investment is basically nil. Now, in Elden Ring, you can fill up your vigor to level 40, gaining about 26 health points per level applied. Once you cross that level 40 barrier, though, it drops to 13 points added per level. And then once you hit level 60, you'll hit a hard cap, at which point it will drop once again to only 5 HP added per level. To offer a counter example, in Bloodborne, for its vitality stat, that had a soft cap of 30 compared to Elden Ring's 40, and Bloodborne had a hard cap of 50 as opposed to Elden Ring's hard cap of 60. Or in Dark Souls 3, you hit an early hard cap at level 44 in Vigor, at which point you only gained 10 HP from subsequent levels up. And all this really tells us is that, for one, Bloodborne was a much shorter game, and the amount of levels they expected you to be applying over the course of a regular run of the game weren't as high as in a game such as Elden Ring. Elden Ring, most players that I looked at were anywhere between level 80 and level 130 by the time they finished the game. 
which makes sense, especially if players are specializing in a couple of key skills. They probably are reaching about that hard cap for vigor and for endurance, and then if they're specializing in a strength weapon for strength, and by the time the game's over, they've pretty much met that hard cap for all of the important stats that they're concerned with. And then as they continue on through New Game Plus or New Game 2 Plus, they're going to be headed higher and higher towards 99, but there will be majorly diminished returns on every level applied. Now, granted, this can usually be figured out with experimentation, and most players will get a feel for it pretty quickly because they'll notice that once they reach a certain point, they apply skill points and they no longer see reasonable returns. So they'll simply stop applying them to Vigor, for example, and start applying them elsewhere where they see a bigger benefit. We've all done this when leveling up our characters. We mess around with the levels a little bit, aware that we want to put the points into vigor, endurance, or strength, and then we try applying the points in different ways to see what will have the most impactful effect immediately. I just think that all of this is unnecessarily vague, when these thresholds are crossed, that is. The only way we figure this out is when players work together in forums to calculate exactly what these soft caps and hard caps are. Keeping this unknown and unclear for the player doesn't make the game any better, and proof positive of this is that hardcore fans will simply seek out this information as soon as it's available online. And they'll do this because it helps them build characters more effectively. If the developers just provided this information up front, perhaps with a symbol-based system where once you reach the first soft cap, a small minus sign shows up next to the stat indicating a reduced impact, and then once you hit the second soft cap or hard cap, it shows two or more minus signs, something as simple as that would indicate to the player that they've reached the first soft cap for that stat. And again, the only reason I'm saying a system like this would probably be necessary is because these caps are different for each stat. Some of them have two caps, one soft, one hard. Some some of them have four, some have as many as six based on the research done over on the Elden Ring wiki. They probably set this system up this way because they noticed that a linear stat system led to players growing increasingly overpowered at increasingly high rates of speed. So instead they go with this logarithmic system which results in players mostly landing around the same strength level by the end of the game which I'm sure it makes it much easier to balance everything, but considering how unbalanced the rest of the combat system is, it doesn't seem to be working properly. Again, this is part of the reason I wanted to wait for the dust to settle before putting this video out, and it was primarily because diehard fans of this type of game and of this studio find it really difficult to admit faults on the parts of the developers or issues with how they approach the basic combat design and action RPG elements. But in this case, there were so many countless issues with weapon balancing, boss weakness, and performance issues, I think it's impossible to argue that all of this was intentional. It, it seems as though they just lost control of it at some point. And once again, it's made all the more clear by the developer's constant attempts to rebalance the game after it initially launched. You gotta give them credit, they were willing to try to get the game where it needed to be, but it still doesn't change the fact that they were repairing something that was broken, which makes it pretty clear that this wasn't in its proper condition at launch. But to be as clear as I possibly can, I think this system probably works just fine. It just doesn't work well in tandem with the weapon and armor systems that we have in Elden Ring. It's like there are too many moving parts and they can't keep track of everything at the same time. They built these weapon and armor systems on top of a solid foundation in the form of the character 
character builder and the stat systems they've used for their previous games, but because the weapons are so inconsistent in their balancing, it ends up breaking and crumbling under its own weight. And then players grow all the more frustrated and confused because there are multiple soft and hard level caps as they're trying to scale their character for the weapon that might be broken or might not be depending on when it was patched last. And then they feel like they don't know what they're doing because everything is so convoluted and not properly or clearly explained to them. But once again, maybe this is part of the game. Maybe this is a feature, the fact that it's not clear and that the only way you can figure this out clearly and min-max your character is by looking up the wiki and using the assistance and help of other gamers and fans of these types of games. Maybe that's a feature and not actually a problem. Who knows? I, I'm not sure, but I think it would have been very easy to address. Now, one of the other suggestions and recommendations that I made just a few moments ago was that they introduce hot swappable loadout options into these games, because I think if any game needed it, Elden Ring is it. I've always thought that this would be really interesting in a game like Dark Souls or Bloodborne and now Elden Ring. But especially in the latter, the vast variety of weaponry, armor types, and playstyles, it's truly impressive, and it is a major selling point of the game. It's something that the developers should be very proud of, and they should want the players to experiment with all of these abilities and playstyles as much as possible. And I think they did try to offer a way to do this with the larval tiers and the respecking. It's actually fairly easy to find these tiers, and by the end of the game, it's very reasonable to suggest that you could have respect five to ten times by the time you see the credits roll. But with these hot swappable loadout options, I want to go a little bit more in depth and I would like to see something that streamlines this process a little more. Again, it's not about simplifying the process or dumbing it down. It's about streamlining it so there isn't as much wasted time on the part of the player and so that it's easier for the player to take on bosses in different play styles without having to go into the menus and spend 10 minutes applying different weapons and then going, finding a larval tier for 20 minutes and then fast traveling back into the library to talk to Rena to respec and then going all the way back to the boss arena to try and take on the boss again. I think having the ability to simply pop into your inventory, perhaps spend 25,000 runes or something to instantly swap to your magic build or a build with a colossal greatsword or a build that's made with bleed damage, I think could add a lot of really positive dynamic action into the already robust combat system here. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it is. It's something that Monster Hunter has been doing for a very long time. In a game like Monster Hunter World, you can have all of these different loadouts equipped at the same time, including different items in your inventory, armor sets, the weaponry. You can swap between all of these for different monster fights. And that only makes sense because different monsters, just like the bosses in Elden Ring, have different resistances, weaknesses, and movesets that make certain loadouts more effective than others. In Elden Ring, some bosses are highly vulnerable to fire damage and others are completely immune to it. I just find it baffling that you can't quickly change your loadout in this game even after all these years of iteration and feedback. Sure, you can swap out your weapons fairly quickly, but because so many of these weapons have certain skill checks, it's very possible on your first run of the game that you won't be able to use the weapon that's ideal for the fight at hand. And I know for a fact that a lot of people probably got stuck on some of the later game bosses in Elden Ring, and after five hours of banging their heads against the wall, they decided to deploy the nuclear option and completely rework their character into a form that's better optimized for the boss they were stuck at. I'm totally not speaking from experience here. Uh, not at all. 
I also checked with some of my college buddies who played this game and found out that a lot of them did this very thing as well. Players will go to the academy, they'll get reborn if they have the required items, if not they'll need to go spend half an hour hunting one of those down after looking up where to find it online, and then they'll go into their inventory and try to rebuild their character in a way that is ideal for the boss fight they've just been stuck on. They probably then realize that they need to level up the weapon itself that they're going to use, so they need to then go hunt down the necessary objects, grab some more runes by heading to some high level areas, killing some grunts in order to have enough runes to level up the weapons once you have the smithing stones required. And at the end of all of this, they have a loadout that is much better equipped for the boss that they're stuck at. It's true. They take on the boss, beat them after a few tries, and then wanting to go back to the build that they were using as their main build, they have to go all the way back through the beginning of the process, go back to the academy, respec again, re-equip all of their weaponry, armor, items, and then get back into it. It's a process that bloats what's already a frustrating time with the game, dealing with a boss you're stuck at, and bloats it out by an hour to an hour and a half of hunting down mining materials and smithing stones and runes to level up a weapon that you haven't used yet and figuring out the move set so that you can use it better against this boss. It's just needlessly tedious. You know, it's okay to have a difficult game. We all love difficult games. That's why we're playing something like Elden Ring. But there's a difference between a difficult game and a game that's trying to be tedious and trying to be overly convoluted. And I don't think Elden Ring is trying to do that. I think they just are resting on the laurels of past games, such as the Dark Souls franchise. And they're doing things the same way they did in those games when they don't need to. In a game like Elden Ring, there are so many bosses and so many different ways to approach the bosses that it just seems like such a missed opportunity to not have hot swappable loadouts. It's baffling to me that they're not here. If I was going to add any system or any feature to Elden Ring, I would have added that. Like before summons, before any of this other stuff, I would have added in quickly accessible and hot swappable loadouts because I think it would have been so much better. And this is why I think it's important to criticize these companies and hold their feet to the fire. We can be fans of From Software as a team of developers, but that doesn't mean that they are perfect. I'm actually really glad to see that so many people have grown skeptical of the perfect descriptions we've heard surrounding Elden Ring in recent months. Because when the game launched, everybody was saying that it was the next Breath of the Wild, that it was basically perfect, that it would be talked about for decades to come, and it's one of the greatest games ever made. And I'm sure the reviewers truly felt that way at the time. But let's be real, Breath of the Wild had a lot of issues, as does Elden Ring. It's really good, but pretending as though the developers are infallible doesn't achieve anything at all. Like, literally nothing. There is no reason to hype this game up beyond just saying it's really, really, really good. Because if you suggest that it's in some separate category of masterpiece, then constructive criticism isn't heard, it's not considered, and these games in the future releases won't grow beyond the current scope. And it just it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help for players to make excuses for objectively bad design choices or for poor optimization. And secondly, it makes people feel crazy if they come across something that isn't well put together and they try to express it online or to their friends only to be met with disdain and frustration. And most importantly, it prevents From Software from hearing and considering valuable constructive criticism. The only way the future games from these studios get better is if we criticize them when they have problems and we praise them 
for the good attributes and features that are contained therein. Level heads prevail and we need to remember that. Now let's talk about the narrative for a few minutes. Now it will come as no surprise to most of you that I've been very skeptical of From Software's narrative approach for the last few years. I personally don't really enjoy the vague storytelling put forward here. The reason I don't really care is that I don't really consider these narrative games. I don't play Dark Souls 3 for the story. I play for the atmosphere, interesting level design, and the combat. And I think that's probably true of most players. There's certainly a very devoted group of fans who pride themselves on carefully studying the game's lore and the extremely limited dialogue. And for those people, there seems to be enough to keep them really motivated and captivated. And for those people, there seems to be enough here to keep them captivated. But I'm just not one of them. So instead of pretending that I understand the story at the heart of Elden Ring, I'm just going to come clean and say that I don't really know what's going on here. Of course, I get the broad strokes. You are maidenless, tarnished, and yet you have immense power and seem to be capable of taking on some of the most powerful beings in all of the realm. The Elden Ring was a magical ring created by the Great Will, but it was destroyed by Queen Marika in an attempt to resurrect Godwin, blah 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 blah. But to be completely honest, it's not really the focus of this video to go through that story carefully. Other YouTubers have done a far better job of breaking down the main game story, so I won't even pretend as though I'm capable of giving it the same treatment. Instead, I just want to quickly appreciate how all of these bosses share core themes have relationships with each other, and maintain the same general tone. I've tried to put into words while writing this script exactly what I mean by this, and I've honestly just really struggled to define what I mean here. All I can say is that you know it when you see it. All of Bloodborne's bosses, for example, fit into the same general vibe. They're all distinct, they look and sound different, but you see them and you know that they fit into Bloodborne. You know where these things live and what universe they're contained within. In the same way that here in Elden Ring, all of the bosses feel really distinct and at home within this game. At first I thought it had something to do with the color palettes that they're using for the character design or maybe the sound design or the sets or arenas, but all of this is so varied throughout the game that I don't think any one of these could be the culprit for why these bosses feel so congruent. But all I know is that they do, and it really helps you become immersed in this world as you're hunting each of these bosses down one by one. It's really, really impressive, and I think it's not appreciated enough in these games. Not only do the animators have to be working well with the character designers and with the level designers, but also the music has to tie and be coherent within all of it. I think if anything, it's a real testament to the incredible directorial skills of Hidetaka Miyazaki because he's the one that has to oversee all of this and make sure it works together. That's his job as the director of the studio. And he's incredible at it. Like you can't praise it enough. It's so impressive to me. But what I don't know is just what the hell George R.R. R. Martin did in this game. Like I have no idea. In the advertising and trailers, he was front and center. His name was all over the trailers that you see leading up to the game's launch. And it's clear that Bandai Namco were really trying to imply that he had a major role in developing the narrative of the game. But once we got our hands on it on launch day, it became very clear that 
the story of Elden Ring wasn't going to be significantly different in terms of communicative approach or style to Dark Souls or any other From Software game. It was going to be more of the same. We've come to find over the last few months that George mostly helped in the early stages of the game's development, having had a few discussions with Hidetaka Miyazaki where they came up with the game's themes and the broad storyline. But after that, the team over at From Software filled in most of the gaps with assistance from some people around George R.R. R. Martin. Honestly, there's just nothing here that feels even remotely attributable directly to George R.R. R. Martin. Like, it all just seems as though it could have come from Hidetaka Miyazaki, and I, I don't know what George R.R. R. Martin was was doing. Like, I, I think he probably helped with the general themes of like, oh, well, maybe there's these, like a ring, and then people pound it with a hammer, and then there's there's a lady with only one arm, and he's got ideas like that, but I, I don't think he was involved in, like, what does this boss look like? What's his name? What's his story in relationship with the other characters? What should his moveset be like? I, I, I'm not convinced he had that much say. I don't know. Maybe I'm just butthurt because I expected more, but the advertising agencies and the marketing people involved definitely knew what they were doing. They were putting George's name all over the game's trailers to imply that he was going to have a very large role in the development of the game's narrative which implied to many people, including myself, that Elden Ring was going to have a much greater focus on the narrative compared to previous games, because why else would they bring in the guy from Game of Thrones? But none of it seemed to be true at all. I even looked up articles from before the game launched, and I remembered reading some of them. And in these articles, they describe how multiple members of George's staff worked on the game with From Software. They even described a time when some of the members of George's direct staff took time off of filming the final season of Game of Thrones to help with the early conceptualization of Elden Ring. But again, maybe I'm just the one with unrealistic expectations. I don't know what the hell they were doing or what they contributed here. Maybe they were writing dialogue for the trees or something. I, I don't know. Maybe they came up with the finger theme or, or something, but... Like, seriously, I don't know what they spent all that time doing. I, I just don't get it. I won't continue to drag this down. I'm just a little bummed out. I was hoping for more. Maybe this would be the first time we could see a From Software game with carefully written dialogue so that the story isn't communicated so vaguely, but no, no, it's just not in the cards, I guess. But setting all of that aside for the time being, I think it's important to note just how cohesive and coherent the themes are within all of the characters and the world itself. This is one of those things that you notice when it isn't working properly and you don't even think of it when it is working correctly, you know, that, that type of thing. But setting all of that aside, I want to move on and I want to discuss the Elden Ring experience writ large. The first thing is the reviews, because this is what framed most of our impressions of the game. Most players hopped on to Elden Ring after hearing that it was getting near-perfect scores across the board, and so many of us started the game up with very, very high expectations. But this is where I want to communicate something that I've touched on in previous videos. I've mentioned it on stream a ton, so if you've heard me do this rant before, I'm sorry, but I think it's important to outline here. I've received game review codes before. I, I know how the sausage is made. I've been involved in that process. What you need to understand about reviews from big publications and big review sites such as IGN or GameSpot is that when they're deciding editorially who is going to review a given game, they aren't just throwing the code out willy-nilly. They are selecting the reviewer for that game based on their previous experience, what other games they've reviewed, and what games they know, play, and are passionate about. So 
if you are looking at getting a code for Elden Ring and you're like, well, we need somebody to do the official review for this, who are we going to have do it? They're going to give it to the guy who's played every From Software game from the last 20 years and loves these games and is very passionate about them. They're going to give him the code and let him work on the review until it's done and decide what score this game deserves. They're not going to give it to the guy that's obsessed with Mario Kart and only plays Sims. And this makes sense. I'm not bashing them for this. Like if I were deciding who was going to review a game for a website I was running, yes, I would choose it in the same way. It only makes sense. But why that's important to understand is because if you are an outside player who hasn't played from software games before, for example, and you're looking at the reviews for something like Elden Ring and you see it's getting tens, that's a 10 from the perspective of somebody who loves these types of games and knows how they work and understands what works and what doesn't. That's not a 10 from the average gamer's perspective or the casual gamer's perspective. That's a 10 from the from software fans perspective. And I think part of the issue was that a lot of players looked at it in the former light, not the latter light. I had a buddy of mine who wasn't a diehard fan of From Software Games before Elden Ring saw the great reviews and said, well, I mean, it's getting perfect scores, so I should try it. I'll give it a shot. And he booted it up, had a horrible time and hated it. So he shut the game down and felt lied to. He was like, I can't believe I bought this. People said this was a 10. It was just more of the same. I can't believe it. But that's exactly the point. It was a 10 for a From Software fan, not a 10 for Joe Schmo, average gamer, person who plays Call of Duty casually or, or any of the other like Rocket League or anything like that. If you like those games, that's great. There's no problem. But just understand that these reviews were written from the From Software fans perspective. And there's not much more to say about that other than to just bear that in mind moving forward as you see reviews for other games or other releases you know, in the coming years, just remember who they probably assigned to review it. You know, we always laugh when they give like Call of Duty an 8 out of 10 or a 9 out of 10 every year when the game is just more of the same from last year and the value proposition is terrible. Same with like Madden or FIFA reviews. But it's because they're having Madden fans review Madden. They're having FIFA fans review FIFA. So it's reviewed from that perspective. Just don't get it twisted. I, I'm not saying that there's a problem with that. I don't know how else you would possibly review games. But it's important to remember that because when you are looking at reviews for games, you've got to find a reviewer or a critic who you generally agree with. You like their logic or their way of thinking. You like similar games as they do. And then follow their recommendations because that's going to be the way that you have the most reliable information to make your purchasing decisions. Don't just go from Joe Schmo, who's a fan of this type of game, and then, big surprise, happen to like the game that was made by a company that he really enjoys. Instead, find somebody you like and generally agree with and then trust their opinion and inform it however else you can. But I touched on that friend of mine who had a terrible time with the game. Let's talk about Fun Factor. It's no mystery that one of the best parts, if not the best part of From Software games, are the bosses. And the quality of these really generally determines the quality of the overall experience you'll have with the game. And Elden Ring has a lot of them. Over a hundred bosses that are all unique, very interesting, have their own movesets and qualities, elemental damage, weaknesses, you name it, it's all here. It's great. Some of the more notable bosses would be Margit, or Margit, Margit, I think it's Margit. I'm going to say Margit. The Red Wolf, Renala, the Fire Giant, Malaketh, Radon, God Devouring Serpent, Rykard, Lord of Blasphemy, and 
Another fight that I found was particularly interesting, Commander Nyal. I'm sorry, whenever I read his name, I think of that American dad thing of Roger, you know, the Nyaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaa
but instead I just found him more frustrating than he was worth. Though I will admit he does look really cool and thematically it's a really awesome boss fight. Maleketh though is probably my favorite boss in the entire game. After much consideration that is. I went back and forth between this guy and Rykard who we'll go to next, but I really like this guy. He's just very smooth, he feels fair, it's oddly beautiful, the music is tremendous. I love this boss fight. I have almost nothing but positive things to say. The arena is good. The art design in the arena is awesome. I, I just love it. As I just mentioned, one of the other bosses I found compelling was the God Devouring Serpent and Rikard the Lord of Blasphemy. Both of these are great fights. They are beautiful and the music is tremendous. And the cutscenes between phases are some of the best that I've seen in this game full stop. One thing I do feel is important to note is that I really don't like AoE attacks that feel unfair and are almost impossible to dodge. Like, for real, look at this one. How the hell am I supposed to respond to this attack? What the hell is going on? This fight also uses a tool called the Serpent Hunter, which is a weapon that's found within the arena itself. It's a spear that the God Devouring Serpent, or the first phase of this fight, is extremely weak to. And it also has extremely long range, thanks to its L2 ability that shoots out a pillar of wind that deals massive damage. Everyone who played Dark Souls 3 will immediately think of the fight against Yorm the Giant with the Storm Ruler Sword that you also found in the arena. But in the case of Yorm the Giant with Storm Ruler, that fight was just a total joke if you use the weapon they give you. Whereas in this one, I would say the Serpent Hunter is probably necessary for the fight, though it doesn't ever feel as though it's just an instant cheese. It just allows you to actually deal damage because there is a pool of lava surrounding the boss. And if you aren't using something with a lot of range, you won't be able to get close enough to deal damage to get past this first phase. So it really seems as though they intend for you to use the Serpent Hunter, whether you like it or not. And depending on how difficult you find the fight once you start using the Serpent Hunter, you can level it up to plus 10, which makes the fight even easier. I really like the artistic direction of this fight, but I do think it's pretty clunky and needs a lot more polish. Radon is another fight that's really cool, especially artistically and visually, but it's extremely inconsistent in terms of gameplay. It really doesn't feel fair most of the time, but once again, this could just be because this fight in particular has struggled the most with inconsistent balancing. Every time From Software puts out a patch, they either break this fight by making it way too difficult or breaking it by making it far too easy. Maybe by the time you're watching this video, they've struck a good balance, but as of right now, months after the game's launch, the Radon fight is currently in a state where it feels easier than it should be, which is too bad because when it strikes that good balance where it's tough, not too easy, not too hard, but tough and satisfying, it's very, very cool. And like I said, I find the Commander Nyal fight, Nyal, <laughs> again, just Roger. I find this fight really interesting. He's just a really solid, tough fight. He doesn't feel unfair. He's very robust, has a predictable and yet varied moveset, and I just really like it. I, I don't have much else to say other than it's a tough fight, but it's very satisfying to get through. It feels like an old school Dark Souls fight, and 
I mean that in the best way possible. It's really good. And it's tucked away in a corner of the snowy region of the map, so a lot of players probably didn't even get here. But behind him is hidden some really nice armor that's really useful against other brute enemies that deal a lot of blunt damage. So it's definitely worth taking on if you're going to go into New Game Plus, that is. But some of the bosses that totally flop, unfortunately, I would say are the dragon bosses. I just really don't like these. You have to sprint around on torrent to fight with ranged attacks and you swing around trying to whack at their legs. It's just not very compelling and it feels really stupid if I'm being real. And don't even get me started on trying to take on one of these dragons if you happen to be using a great sword or any weapon that doesn't move really, really quickly or have extreme range. These fights are miserable. The one major exception to the dragon rule would be the Lich Dragon Fortisax, which has to be one of the greatest names of any boss in any game ever. This fight is as beautiful as it is chaotic. I wouldn't call it the most difficult fight in the game, but it does feel as fair as a dragon fight can feel in any of these games. You know, it has a similar style of design to Dark Eater Medir from the Dark Souls 3 DLC, uh, The Ringed City, where in general, the dragon sits pretty still, doesn't move around a whole lot, has some AoE and ranged attacks, but you can get up in its snout and deal some damage. I think it's a good way of doing these fights, and I much prefer it to the dragon fights out in the open world of Elden Ring, where they fly around and it just is more tedious than anything to plink away at them trying to deal damage as they fly overhead. And this is the cool thing, like I was working on this script trying to figure out what we should talk about, what bosses we should discuss and why. And I was going to just like blast through all of them and offer my thoughts on everything. But then I realized like in general, most of the comments are the same. It's like, it's really good. The animations feel fair. The lore is interesting. The set piece is beautiful. The animations are smooth. Like I, I would basically just spend an hour going through every boss and being like, I really like it. It's really cool. I love it. And that's just not that interesting. So instead, I'm just going to highlight these and say, I've got some interesting and unique thoughts on these. But in general, the bosses in this game are tremendous. But I do need to award the funniest boss fight of the game award, which is not one I expected to uh, to divvy out, but I felt like I needed to mention it. Basically, if you want to acquire the Mimic tier, which allows you to basically summon a version of yourself, it's a direct carbon copy of your loadout, your character stats, everything, but it fights alongside you as a summon. It's really broken. It's more balanced now, but at launch, it was totally broken. If you want to do that, you have to fight a mimic of yourself one-on-one. -on -one. It's this little arena you find uh, in an alternative area of the map. And it's fascinating because that fight, <laughs> it copies what you're wearing and what you have equipped when you cross a certain threshold. So if you know where that's going to come or if you've tried the fight before and you died, what you can do is as you approach, you just take off all of your clothes and unequip your armor and your weapons and everything, walk past the threshold, and then right as the mimic is spawning in, you reapply all of that stuff to you, and then you're back fully decked out wearing armor and using weapons and things, but the mimic will have been summoned and copied off of the naked version of yourself. So you'll just be fighting a naked humanoid that's trying to slap you, and it's really, really funny. It totally breaks the boss. Like It is the most cheese way of dealing with this possible, but I found it really, really funny. 
I, that, that's it. The, the funniest fight award, the mimic tier mini boss fight. I, I love it. It was so funny when I figured out you could do that. And then I looked it up and a lot of people had already figured it out. So I wasn't as smart as I thought I was, but I thought it was really, really funny that you can do that and just fight a naked version of yourself. It's just funny to me. But let's touch on the lasting legacy of Elden Ring. No matter which way you look at it, this game is pretty fantastic. It does a lot very, very well, but certainly could have benefited from a little more polish and refinement and some added features such as the hot swappable loadouts that I keep going on and on about. As I've said a few times, I think in many ways From Software here created a monster that they eventually lost control of. Early in development, they had a pretty clear vision of what this game was going to be, I'm sure, and that's basically Dark Souls in an open world with a mount that you can ride around to traverse quicker, and that that's an awesome idea, and it ended up being a great game. It really makes sense that they would imagine that game and want to make it, but certain systems that they built in Dark Souls 3, Dark Souls 2, Dark Souls 1, Bloodborne, Sekiro, don't scale that well, and they need a lot more attention to make sure that you can retain the Dark Souls experience while avoiding the growing pains of expanding into an open world. Without a doubt, there are very few studios which would be able to pull off a game of this scale and magnitude while avoiding the aforementioned growing pains. It certainly takes a lot of work and effort. But even then, the solutions for one game won't necessarily apply to another. For example, Skyrim manages all of this scaling by having certain weapons locked behind hard skill checks. They have large DPS checks that gate players out of certain areas, certain locations are locked behind quest activities, and perhaps the cherry on top of all of this is that they didn't take it very seriously and the combat didn't demand very much precision in terms of balance. In the case of something like The Witcher 3, all of the enemies had levels assigned to them, which scaled their damage output and HP capacities. If you were of a similar level or higher, you could take on that area pretty confidently as long as you had weaponry at about the same level as your own. But all of these solutions, when put together, don't necessarily apply well to a game like Elden Ring, which is trying to do something very different. I don't think it would work to have every NPC and boss given a firm level suggestion that sits next to their health bars. The combat is also, in Elden Ring, supposed to be much more grueling and difficult, which is why Skyrim's approach wouldn't apply, because that game wasn't trying to offer that combat experience. It just goes to show you that what works well for one great game doesn't necessarily work well for another great game. Individual solutions need to be applied. After a lot of very careful consideration, I've actually come to the conclusion that you either need a very strict leveling system to maintain the difficulty across all encounters consistently, like your typical level scaling that you'll see in a lot of RPGs, or you let it just work itself out, which is the route that From Software took in this game. Instead of making sure every encounter was consistently difficult, they just allowed the player to explore the map freely and to stumble onto some of the most difficult bosses and some of the easiest bosses all at the same time. Sure, it has the negative effect of having very inconsistent difficulty for players, but it also has the positive effect of taking everybody's experience with the game and making it unique. As we discussed earlier, it also enables the player to balance the game for themselves by leveling up separately and only taking on encounters when they personally feel ready for them. It's definitely the lazier of the two options, and it's easier for the development team to just let go and let players regulate it themselves, and it can certainly result in a lot of players growing frustrated or bored, but judging by Elden Ring's overwhelming success, it seems as though players don't really mind. I've previously bashed developers, as I mentioned earlier, for doing this same thing. I remember even criticizing games like The Witcher 3, or Assassin's Creed Origins, or Odyssey, and Valhalla 
for relying on players rebalancing the games for themselves. Because basically in those games, if you ran into an encounter that was too difficult, you could just pop into the options menu and lower the difficulty for that encounter, only to raise it back up once you're done. But the difference is in those examples, the player was going into the menus to alter the level scaling. Whereas in the case of Elden Ring, you are going out and playing the game further to rebalance it. Whether that's fighting other bosses for runes or just grinding in some lucrative locations, you're still playing the game to alter the difficulty of an encounter that you struggled with before. And that to me seems like a much better solution to inconsistent difficulty than just giving players a magic wand that can raise or lower enemy health bars in the form of a difficulty slider. So while I don't think it's a perfect solution, I think it's a fair one for the time being. I would still insist that they should get rid of the grinding locations that have been so publicized on platforms like TikTok, because I would say that grinding one small location for runes only to quickly reload and repeat for hours on end results in a much worse experience for the player at the end of the day than if you just balance the game properly such that they don't have to do that or such that they could get those same rune payoffs by engaging in some of the more fun elements of the game such as the large boss fights they'll have to do some light tweaking such as removing some sites of grace to make the grinding so inconvenient that it's not practical or greatly increasing the difficulty of certain areas that are commonly used for farming but i think you would also need to give players an alternative if you're going to task them with balancing the game for themselves this would probably be in the form of some items that you can pop that give you a marker for the closest boss encounter, for example. I think this could be really fun, not just for the players that are struggling in certain areas because they aren't high level enough, but it would also be fun for people who are just looking to speed run the game for boss fights without having to have the wiki pulled up on their laptop next to them. You could just explore the lands between, pop an item that leads you to the closest boss fight you haven't completed, and take it on. I, for one, know that I would use this all the time. It would almost be like the Sheikah Slate in Breath of the Wild that allows you to track where the closest shrines are, but instead of shrines, it would lead you to boss encounters. I think it would be a great addition and I would love to use it. And I know some of you are thinking, well, they should probably just add a boss rush mode. And I think that that actually could be a really cool addition, especially in something like a DLC. Like for real, from software, just give us the ability, perhaps after we've completed the game once, to load directly into a boss arena or encounter with a given loadout that we've selected. It could even be something like the Chalice Dungeons in Bloodborne, where you can fight the bosses in one large arena to your heart's content. I think this would add so much to the game's longevity, and it would definitely be helpful for new players who just want to drill some particularly difficult bosses until they get them sorted out. I can only imagine how useful it would be for speedrunners who want to practice no-hit runs without having to use outside software to quick load into certain areas, but I'll leave it there. <laughs> because I know a lot of other people want this from the developers and have been asking for a boss rush mode for years. I really don't know why they don't just do it at this point. It seems like such a no-brainer. I really don't know if it's for some artistic reason or if it's just laziness or if there's some other limitation maybe with the engine that I haven't considered, but it seems like this would be an easy way to win some massive brownie points from fans. Even if it's a DLC for 10 bucks, I would buy it. Like for 10 bucks, I can do a quick run to any boss in the game I want and just blast through those. I mean, yeah, it would be better if it were free, but I mean, come on. I just want a boss rush mode. That's all. That's what I want. <laughs> but going back to the legacy of Elden Ring, I, I find this whole 
discussion really compelling because while I think the game is not a masterpiece and has a lot of issues itself, I do think it is tremendous. I don't think it's a triumph of open world design, but I do think it does a good job with its open world design. I really think what this comes down to is the hype was primarily generated because fans of From Software games are die-hard fans. They love these games with a passion, and I get why. They're great games. I would even say I'm a big, big fan, probably not die-hard, but a big, big fan of these games. But that being said, I can still point out things and recognize things that I don't think are working well or things that I think would greatly improve the experience. But those diehard fans, they are so used to blasting through Dark Souls for the 15th time that when they saw that they were going to get effectively 100 bosses, a game 10 times the size of something like Dark Souls 3, and they could just explore freely, find whatever bosses they want, stumble onto them while navigating the world to their heart's content, that was a dream come true, something people have been asking for for a long time. And so it seemed like a dream come true, which is why there was a fair amount of hyperbole. <laughs> if I put it this way, I just don't know what singular thing you could point to in Elden Ring that is so unbelievably unique that it's revolutionary or a totally new idea that nobody's thought of. Basically what they did is they took really high quality boss encounters and then sprinkled them through a pretty competently designed open world and gave the player the freedom to explore it in whichever order or way they wanted to with a robust combat system backing it up. It's not particularly revolutionary, but they just did something that nobody else has done anywhere near as well. I mean, I could point to The Witcher 3, which had a big open world that was very well designed and they tried to sprinkle it with mini-bosses and side quests. You could stumble into monster nests while out in a forest. It was a very well-put-together open world, but the combat system wasn't as robust as Elden Rings, and the bosses definitely were not the centerpiece. So it was good, but it didn't feel great. And Skyrim did the same thing, but again, the combat system wasn't tremendous, so it's like still a very, very good game, but it's not great in terms of its combat and those boss encounters. But then Elden Ring comes along and does all of that with amazing boss encounters and with a very robust combat system, and it feels tremendous, and it feels remarkable and unique and different, because it is. Other parts of the game I do insist are lacking. This is far from a perfect game, but I think in the pursuit of what they were trying to achieve, and that is to give us Dark Souls in an open world, they succeeded fantastically and they deserve all the praise they've received. I know a lot of people have bashed some of the additions, such as the summons that they introduced, or a lot of the OP weapons that are here, but all told, I think these are great additions, and I think the game works very coherently and cohesively. Everything just works. The lasting impression I have, the lasting legacy of Elden Ring for me, is that it's a remarkable game, and one that I wish I could experience again for the first time, because that moment of realization of all of the opportunities and possibilities of the countless bosses and all the mysteries that might be out there as I look across the vast expanse, that's a feeling you don't get very often in a video game, and it's a special feeling. It's one that I think separates great games from good games. You know, when you wish you could erase your memory to experience it again for the first time. I felt that for Breath of the Wild, for The Witcher 3, Red Dead Redemption 2, and I feel that for Elden Ring as well. But let me know what you think of Elden Ring in the comment section below the like button. I'm really interested in hearing all of your thoughts. Thank you to everybody who pitched in to help 
produce this over on Patreon or donations and subs over on Twitch. I really appreciate that. And to everybody who's been sending tips through uh, YouTube, which is a new thing, apparently. That's incredibly generous. If you didn't know, you can actually tip through the YouTube page on a video you particularly appreciate. And the money goes straight to us to continue producing these videos. And you also get a little notifier. You can leave a comment that's highlighted with your donation. So you get to stand out in the comment section. It's really cool. So for all of you who have done that, I really appreciate you guys. Thank you, truly. But with that, I'm going to leave it right there. Thank you all for watching. I love you more than you could possibly know. And I'll see you in the next video. Peace out.